In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree, and here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedar cover, a savage place, as holy and enchanted as Aea beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in vast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail, and mid these dancing rocks at once and ever it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale the sacred river ran, and then reached the caverns measureless to man, and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war, the shadow of the Dome of Pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora, could I revive within me her symphony and song to such deep delight twould win me, that with music loud and long, I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honey dew hath fed and drunk. The Milk of Paradise. Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. There you go, get some culture up into you, eh? Eh? Culture, eh? Yeah, this guy gets it. It'll be relevant in about an hour and a half or so, so I hope you were taking notes. So as ever, language alert on this episode. If that kind of thing upsets you, I will be saying some words that make you go, uh, couldn't he have done better? So uh, you've been warned. It's called Passion Karen. Look it up. Also, the religion alert from last show, that still applies. Christianity is going to be getting an utter roasting, as does Islam to a lesser extent, and I also go at Buddhism and Confucianism a bit too. So if your sky wizard sensibilities are acting up today, now is the time to hit the eject button. But for those of you that remain, we're going to have some fun. 
And in case you haven't guessed, this show is part three of a trilogy about the rise and rise of the Mongol horde in the 13th century. This is a really rich and complex vein of history, so I really recommend that if you haven't listened to parts one and two, you do that before you get into this show. I mean, you don't have to, though. You do you. Maybe you like starting shows in media res. I'm not going to tell you what you're about, but things might get confusing if you aren't across what's happening to this point. So, again, you live life how you like. Maybe you're just going to back yourself to pick up the show as you go along. In that case, mad props to your self-belief. Shine on. But show's probably going to make a lot more sense if you've heard parts one and two first. All right, here's a quick recap before we dive in. The Mongols went to Europe and had a fun time with Subodai and Jebe, two of the greatest generals ever, conquering most of Eastern Europe despite trying really hard not to. Uh, meanwhile, Genghis Khan himself was doing some warring in China, and he just conquered two of the three major kingdoms in China before he died suddenly, possibly because of a poison needle in the dick. And now, for the first time ever, there's a great Khan that isn't Genghis Khan. And that's Genghis Khan's son, Ogadai. So as we pick up the story, Ogadai is about to have a ceremony proclaiming him as the new Khan. Just like Hot Rod became Rodimus Prime in the Transformers movie, Ogadai is about to absorb the Matrix of Leadership and become Ogadai Prime. Uh, I mean, Ogadai Khan. He has the touch. He has the power. You got- And of course, none of this happens automatically. As it was passed to me. But Prime, I'm, I'm just a soldier. I, I'm not worthy. <sighs> Nor was I. The Mongols were really big on ceremony. So to do this, to make a new Khan, you've got to have a Kurultai. Because everything Mongols do needs a Kurultai. If you recall from throughout the series, a Kurultai is kind of like Mongol Woodstock. If Woodstock was also an important religious and political festival, and it was mandatory to attend, or else you'd be executed. So we've got to have one of those. The Mongols pack up everything they're doing, and they head back to Mongolia for a Kurultai. And it's this Kurultai where Genghis Khan's will gets enacted. His son Ogadai gets the top job, but all the other major sons, they all get a consolation prize. They each get a slice of the step to call their own and rule as they will. They all owe fealty to the Khan, but within the kingdom, they can sort of do what they like. They don't get any cities or anything, no conquered territory. Conquered territory always belongs to the Khan, but within the Mongolian steppe, they kind of get their own little uh, suzerains, what's called Khanates. And... Basically, all the other sons of Genghis Khan get made into Dukes of Mongolia. And this is supposed to stop any sort of friction and keep everyone happy and loyal to the empire. It's not Genghis Khan's idea. This has been done throughout the past. Guys like Cyrus the Great did it. And it has varying success throughout history. So these sons all get a consolation prize. But the big prize, the Khan, that goes to Ogadai. And Ogadai is an interesting choice for leader of the Mongol horde. Me Grimlock, no bozo, me king! 
Nobody's disputing the choice because he was handpicked by Genghis Khan himself, and nobody is going to second-guess the great Genghis Khan. But Ogadai was considered a little bit iffy by the other Mongols. Ogadai Khan was what the Mongols considered to be a merciful ruler. He was considered to be sensitive, kind-hearted, perhaps even soft. Some of his brothers actually thought that he was weak because of this. But apparently it's one of the reasons that Genghis Khan thought that he'd be good for the job. He was more diplomatic than his brothers. He wasn't as ruthless. He was perhaps even compassionate. Of course, this is by Mongol standards. You need to remember that. He was a kind and merciful ruler for a Mongol. To anyone that wasn't a Mongol... Ogudai Khan is easily one of the most ruthless dictators in history. Kind of like how a lion is more forgiving than a tiger, but you don't really want to be in close quarters with either of them. Ogudai will do things like pause and consider before wiping out an entire civilization. He'll still wipe out entire civilizations, but he'll have a bit of a think about it first. And that's a massively progressive step towards humanism for the Mongols. You've got to remember, this is all relative. Genghis Khan instantly murdered entire cultures. Ogadai Khan stops, has a bit of a think about it, and then murders entire cultures. Baby steps, people. Baby steps. So Ogadai, son of Genghis, has now been elected Great Khan. And he's the first Great Khan ever that wasn't THE Great Khan, as in Genghis Khan. This is pretty heavy. Ogadai has what is perhaps the biggest shoes to fill in the history of metaphorical podiatry. How do you follow Genghis Khan? How do you follow an act where the guy's name is literally Super King? Short answer, you don't. You just do the best that you can. And that's what Ogadai Khan does. He does the best that he can. And in Ogadai's case, he has a couple of things going for him. First, he's Genghis Khan's son. That's always going to look good on your resume. Secondly, he was handpicked by Genghis Khan himself to be the next Khan. And that smooths a lot of things over. And thirdly, Ogadai was a very competent Mongol leader in his own right, even before he became Khan. Ogadai was a great general. In fact, he was instrumental in a number of victories in the Khwarizmian campaign. He was a top-notch commander, just not as good as Genghis Khan. But then again, who was? Ogadai was a good administrator too. He handled running his own territories well. There were no problems there. He just didn't do it quite as well as Genghis Khan. He was strategically and tactically brilliant, just not as brilliant as Genghis Khan. He was strong and charismatic and wise, just not as any of those things as the great Genghis Khan. And I don't want to look like I'm casting aspersions on Ogadai here either, because of course he wasn't as good as Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan is one of the most incredible and influential people who has ever lived, if not the most. It's impossible to follow an act like that. It brings to mind a quote, and I'm going from memory here, but I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald talking about the Great Gatsby. 
and he was doing an interview, and the reporter asked a particularly obtuse question, and this reporter said to F. Scott Fitzgerald, what does it feel like to have never written another book as good as The Great Gatsby? And Fitzgerald replied with something along the lines of, well, nobody else has either. And it's kind of like that with the Khans. Each Khan isn't quite as good as the previous one. Well, except for one of them way down the line. But the standard is so amazingly high that we're judging them rather unfairly if we compare them. And by all accounts, Ogodai Khan was a great Khan. He just wasn't Genghis Khan. And while he was amazingly competent, Ogodai did have one particular major, even fatal, flaw. Ogodai was a raging alcoholic. I'm a rageaholic! <laughs> I just can't live without rageahol! He drank a truly heroic amount of alcohol. Like Hunter S. Thompson levels of alcohol abuse. This is bad country. The Mongols as a people were known for their alcoholism, and Ogodai was known as an alcoholic to those people. There's this famous anecdote that Ogodai's drinking became so out of control that his family, the royal family of the Mongols, this vicious band of unstoppable killbots, they all got together and they had an intervention to try and curb all of the drinking that Ogodai was doing. And they eventually managed to convince Ogodai that his drinking was a problem and that he had to stop it for the good of the empire, if for nothing else, because, you know, he's the Khan, and he has a responsibility to his people, and Ogodai's really moved by all of this, and he thinks about his responsibilities as Khan, and he looks at his family, and he feels the familial love, and he says, okay, fine, you got through to me, I promise to only have one cup of wine a day. And everyone's really relieved, okay, problem solved, dodged a bullet there, and then Ogodai goes down to the royal blacksmith and he commissions a custom drinking mug to have his one cup of wine a day with. And this thing is fucking huge. It's seriously the size of a bathtub. It cannot be lifted by mortal hands. Ogodai has to dunk his head in it and drink it like it's a trough. And since he was still technically only drinking one cup of wine a day, it just happened to be the size of a bathtub and he was drinking it all day, it was still one cup. He felt pretty fucking pleased with himself. Checkmate everyone else. I win. Oh, you thought Amy Schumer wrote that joke? No, that's from The Secret History of the Mongols. To be fair, though, that is the only joke that Amy Schumer has ever stolen. From The History of the Mongols. So Ogodai Khan wasn't quite the man that his father was. Which is both a blessing and a curse. Because while I've talked about the good traits... There's no debating that both men are monsters. Saying that Ogodai wasn't quite as big a monster as Genghis is kind of like saying that you'd rather live in a town where Frankenstein is the mayor instead of Dracula. That metaphor works for me, shut up. I know I've been belaboring this point a lot during the last couple of shows, but it's important to point out that one can admire the positive things that the Mongols did and Genghis Khan in particular, without condoning the atrocities that they committed. They're not mutually exclusive. Because the Mongols committed more atrocities on a larger scale 
than anyone else in history. Nobody else even comes close. You could combine Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, and all of those combined, they might get somewhere near the ballpark of the Mongols, but they're still not even close. Ain't the same fucking ballpark. It ain't the same league. It ain't even the same fucking sport. But on the other hand, there's also no denying that Genghis Khan and his Mongols created the largest contiguous empire in history. They invented modern warfare. They brought massive social, spiritual, and technological innovation to most of the world at the time, in a time when that world was conservative and regressive. And on top of all of this, within the borders of the Mongol Empire, they created an environment of absolute peace, something that's called the Pax Mongolia, Mongolian peace. Basically, there was no crime at all anywhere in this massive Mongolian empire because everyone was so utterly terrified of the Mongols that they didn't dare commit any crimes. It was like a quarter of the planet was policed by an army of Batman. There was a saying that a small girl could walk the length of the Mongol Empire carrying a basket full of gold and not fear the slightest provocation. So the Mongols did a lot of good things, but they also raped and murdered somewhere in the vicinity of 30 million people. Which, by way of percentage of the population back then, is way more than it sounds. You have to account for inflation. Hitler's Holocaust is the current go-to definition of large-scale evil, and rightfully so. But the atrocities committed by the Nazis, even though they were utterly massive in scale, even then, they can't be recorded as a percentage of the world's population. A fraction of a percent, sure, but not a whole number. For the Mongols, we can do that. And yet, take a walk down the street and ask people who the biggest killer in history was, and nine times out of ten, they're going to say Hitler. I'd be genuinely surprised if anyone you asked said that the biggest killer in history was Genghis Khan. And I'd be utterly astonished if anyone gave the correct answer, which is Thomas Midgley Jr., but that's a story for another time. History is so massively big and continually getting bigger that even the most influential people of all time get reduced to just a few bullet points. And hardly ever are those bullet points the massive amounts of people killed because of those actions. Alexander the Great killed millions of people, and he's celebrated as the person who spread Western civilization to the rest of the world. Julius Caesar wiped out about half of France and Germany at the time, and he has a month named after him. Genghis Khan killed about 1% of the world's population, and Mongolia has him on their money. History has a tendency to forget the sins of great people. And sadly, this is 100% going to happen to Hitler one day as well. You go hundreds of years in the future, and he'll be condensed down to a few bullet points. Actually, considering that last year I read an article in the trash newspaper The Australian, which said that Hitler wasn't all bad, I'm going to go ahead and say that this whitewashing of Hitler's history is already happening. Thanks, Rupert Murdoch. Anyway, that's a long way of saying that Genghis Khan and the rest of the Khans were all very complicated characters. And none more so than Genghis Khan himself. On one hand, amazing guy that did amazing things that nobody has ever since been able to replicate. 
but on the other hand, killed about 30 million people. And history has softened on him somewhat to the point that a German disco band was named after him and said band became the voice of the 1980 Summer Olympics, which is a festival of peace. Talk about deviating from the brand. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, then you need to pause the show right now, drop everything, jump on YouTube, and look up the film clip of what I'm talking about. The band is called Genghis Khan. The song is called Moscow. And it's from the 1979 Eurovision Song Contest, and it is exactly what the world would look like if you did a bag and then brainstormed what if Flash Gordon was a musical set in East Berlin during the Cold War? Alright, since I've gone this far, we might as well make it into another trademark tangent time! So, the history of Genghis Khan, that is, the band and not the guy, and this particular song called Moscow, is fucking wild, and I honestly cannot do it enough justice. But oddly enough, I think it actually ties together a lot of the historical threads that I'm trying to bring here. This song is a nexus point of so many different issues of not only this time, but history up to and including the Mongols. There's the Cold War, there's tensions between Turkey and Yugoslavia and Israel, there's the whole Arab-Israeli conflict going on way back before Jared Kushner fixed it. Uh, there's an incident where somehow the Israelis also managed to piss off the Dutch and the Swiss, which is hard to do, and the whole 1979 Eurovision Song Contest has a surprising amount of creepy mimes, and all of this parlays into the 1980 Olympics, and basically you can draw a line through all of this and say that none of it would have happened if Subutai hadn't taken 20,000 Mongols and invaded Kievan Rus in the 13th century. There's a direct line through all of this. You can go, Genghis Khan, Subodai, stuff happens, 1979 Eurovision, 1980 Olympics. History is a rich tapestry. Anyway, the 1979 Eurovision Song Contest was held in Israel. And Genghis Khan and Moscow didn't win. The actual winner was Israel's own Milk and Honey with the very bland song Hallelujah. Boring. And I mean, what a coincidence that the home team won in the home country during all of this ethnic tension that's playing out. And coincidentally, Milk and Honey performed directly after Genghis Khan on the night. So, like I said, rich tapestry. So, during this tangent time, you might be wondering, why does the fourth place song in the 1979 Eurovision Song Contest become such a big deal? Well, A, because it's fucking awesome. Have you watched the clip yet? But there is another reason. The 1980 Summer Olympics. The second most politically charged Olympics of all time. Munich in 72, obviously, before you ask. So as it happened, the 1980 Summer Olympics was held in Moscow. Moscow is the capital of the Soviet Union. And this was right smack bang in the middle of the Cold War. There is a lot of tension. 
so the world needed a little something to lighten the mood a bit. And what do you know, there just so happens to be a happy little disco song called Moscow, which is where the Olympics are being held. And now you get to find out just how deep this rabbit hole goes. The band, Genghis Khan, and their song, Moscow, would have faded into the mists of time if it weren't for Australia's own Channel 7. Channel 7, the Dane Cook of Australian commercial television, was the rights holder to air the footage of the 1980 Olympics, because they always are. They're the ones that pay to cryogenically freeze Bruce McAvaney between Olympics. They get the rights. That's how it works. Anyway, they're looking for some filler to play during the break between events. And they found this Eurovision song called Moscow, and wow, that's a nice easy slam dunk for Kerry Stokes, right? So Seven played the song non-stop, and suddenly this very niche band from Divided Berlin somehow had a number one single in Australia for six weeks. So why didn't Genghis Khan make it in other countries for exactly the same reason? Why weren't they a global phenomenon? Well, that's because Australia was one of the countries that didn't boycott the 1980 Olympics. Why were countries boycotting the 1980 Olympics? Because it was being held in Moscow, the capital of the Soviet Union. The detente period of warmer relations between the Cold War powers had been getting frostier by the year, and all of this culminated in 1979 when the Ruskies invaded Afghanistan, which really didn't work out well for anyone, and fucked the entire world to this day with no sign of letting up. As a direct consequence of this invasion, none of us are allowed to take shampoo on a plane anymore because the CIA decided that instead of doing another Vietnam, they'd train and fund some of the local freedom fighters in the region because there's no way that's going to come back and crash into a trade center. So in 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan, and in 1980, they host the International Sporting Festival of Peace. A lot of people were pissed off. Australia, of course, gave zero shits about this because the Olympics is our opioid of the masses. As of recording this show right now, the Tokyo Olympics is on, and if you want examples of this, go and look outside. So anyway, there's no way that Australia is going to pass up the opportunity to show the world that we're really good at lap swimming and boat rowing. Except that at the 1980 Olympics, we got our asses handed to us on a Russian platter because the Soviet Union's athletes were being pumped full of every steroid known to man as part of their Olympic Winter Soldier program. The Fraser government, in its infinite wisdom, would then set up an investigation into this butt-whooping and spent 10 years and millions of dollars of taxpayer money to determine that the Soviets had in fact cheated at which point Leonid Brezhnev responded with, well, duh. But anyway, that's why this crazy disco song was a hit over here. There was an Olympics in Moscow, there was a song called Moscow, someone in the Channel 7 marketing team looked at that and decided that they were going to take a half day off. And as it turned out, the song itself was banned in the Soviet Union. Probably because it was fun, and the Soviet Union doesn't like fun. Well, actually, it was banned because it referred to the old Tsarist regime in the lyrics, which is a big no-no in the glorious Soviet Union. So the band members were persona non grata in the city that they were singing about. 
which of course meant that it became an instant cult classic because everyone wanted to hear this song because it was banned by the Politburo. Classic Streisand effect. So there are two places on the planet where this song is a big deal. Australia, because of the Olympics, and the Soviet Union, because it was banned in the Soviet Union. The song was played during the official state TV coverage of the New Year's Eve celebrations in 1979 in the Soviet Union, and it lasted for 16 seconds before the feed was cut and the television director was fired on the spot. Gosh, I hope they mean they just sacked him. Whenever the Soviet Union says fired, you don't know whether they mean sacked or fired out of a cannon. And if you want even more evidence that Genghis Khan, the band, not the guy, is the absolute nexus point of history, there's not only all of that, but Genghis Khan's frontman, their lead dancer, and immaculately mustachioed dreamboat, Louis Henrik Potgeiter. He was a white South African who left South Africa because everybody was boycotting South Africa due to the apartheid, and that was something that he himself couldn't agree with, so he emigrated to East Berlin, and then he later contracted and died from AIDS. And when he had AIDS, he used his profile alongside people like Freddie Mercury to help destigmatize the disease. So, basically, literally everything in the 20th century revolves around this song. When I played that clip and a lot of the older audience went, oh, I haven't heard that song in Yonks, how many of you knew that it was the cosmic center of every significant event of the late 20th century? Genghis Khan's Moscow. And all of this, Moscow, the Olympics, the Cold War, the invasion of Afghanistan, 9-11, Malcolm Fraser, all of it happens because of the political instability brought about by the Mongol invasion, which was later capitalized on by Ivan the Terrible, and basically cascaded into all of this. History is crazy, yo. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Let's rewind a bit back to the Mongols. Where were we? Oh yeah, Genghis Khan is dead. His son Ogodai has just taken the reins as the new Khan. Now, before Genghis Khan died, he said to Ogodai, look, son, one day... Oh, wait, hang on. Genghis Khan was supposed to be British, wasn't he? Yeah, all right. Sorry. Now, before Genghis Khan died, he said to his son Ogodai, look, son, one day I'll be dead, and you'll be the Khan. And when that time comes, I want you to do something for me. And Ogodai said, sure, Pop, anything for you. And Genghis said, son, I want you to conquer the entire world for me. Which, you know, bit of an ask. But Ogodai is going to give it a red-hot crack. So Ogodai gets made the new Khan, and he gets up in front of the Kurultai, and he addresses the gathering of all the Mongols in the world, and he declares war on... Well, he declares war on the entire world. And he gathers up the Golden Horde, and he attacks... Well, everyone. As of this Kurultai, if there are people in the world that exist anywhere on the planet... They're now at war with Ogodai Khan. They might not know it yet, but they're about to find out. Because you know what's better than one Mongol invasion? That's right, three Mongol invasions at the same time. Ogodai Khan sends an army down to China to swing his dick around there. He sends another army back to Persia and the Middle East, just in case they had any ideas about rebuilding their civilization. And finally, Ogodai sits down and he has a chat to Subutai. 
and he says, hey, Subes, you know that place that you kicked the shit out of with like 20,000 guys? How would you like to go back there with 200,000 guys? And Subodai says, fuck yeah, I'm into that. Subodai is happy as Larry, and Larry is stoked. Because Subodai loves conquering Europe. It's his hobby. You gotta love what you do. So off the Mongols go to conquer Europe. And let's be clear here, this is all going to be done with the best army in the world at the time. And it's the best by a long, long way. It's an army so good that it will take at least half a millennium for the rest of the world to catch up. Now, because Ogodai has just declared war on the entire world at once, this is going to get a bit murky in terms of narrative. It's kind of hard to tell this story because there's a whole bunch of stories to tell that are happening at the same time. A whole bunch of shit's about to go down all at once. So just try and bear with me here as I try and tackle this and cram it into a cohesive narrative. First off, there's the conquest of China. Now, what I'm about to do is going to make actual history buffs feel a great disturbance in the force, because I'm going to be crushing a multi-pronged, incredibly complicated military conquest that took over 50 years to complete into a couple of paragraphs. There's no sense describing this, because we all know how the Mongols roll by now, you just apply what you already know to this, there's nothing particularly different here. I could go through blow by blow and explain how these battles go down, but for the layman, they're all pretty much the same. The Mongols come in, and they do their Mongol thing, and everyone dies, and that's pretty much the end of it. It takes 50 years, but that's pretty much the end of it. My apologies to the millions and millions of people who died in this war, but you're on the cutting room floor in more ways than one. In the last show, I went into great detail about how the Mongols fought, so go back and give that a whirl if you can't remember, and just sort of apply it here. And I explored this next bit in the last episode too, but for this I will give a bit of a quick refresher. Remember, China isn't one big homogeneous country at this point. For most of its history, it's been a bunch of smaller states, and sometimes, like during this time period, it's three big kingdoms. And during the 1200s, it's the Shisha, the Jin, and the Song. Those are the big three. And as we all know, that's now down to two, because the Shisha had pissed off Genghis Khan, and now they don't exist anymore. Actually, it's kind of more like one and a half, because the Mongols have been fighting the Jin for about a decade too, and it's not going great for the Jin. And the relationship between these three states is very pertinent to the story. These massive Chinese kingdoms do not like each other. In fact, they don't like each other even more than they don't like the Mongols, which is kind of silly because it's the Mongols they should be worried about. But none of them can get over themselves long enough to band together and try and fight off the Golden Horde. And if you missed the last episode, yes, I'm aware that Golden Horde is not technically correct, but it is way cooler to say. So the northernmost state in China was the Shisha. They're gone now. You should remember that from the end of the last episode. That was the last time Genghis Khan did any Genghising. The Middle Kingdom was the Jin, who are currently at war with the Mongols. And the southernmost was the Song, who are the mortal enemies of the Jin. So while the Jin are fighting the Mongols, 
they're also fighting off the Song on the other front. And this is exactly what the Mongols live for. Remember, they're masters of a little game called, hey, how about you two guys fight? And then they come in and sucker punch everyone while their backs are turned. So the Mongols are fighting the Jin. And it's not going well for the Jin. So the Jin get desperate and they send an envoy down to the Song, their mortal enemies. This is a massive pride-swallowing event. They hate the Song. But they've run out of options. This is an existential threat. The Mongols are going to wipe them from the face of the earth. You gotta do what you gotta do. And this Jin envoy says to the song, hey, these Mongols are like nothing we've ever seen before. We need to band together and fight them off, or we're all gonna die. And the song reply, yeah, we're gonna take a hard pass on the whole alliance thing, because... This sounds like a you problem. Meanwhile, the Mongols have sent their own envoy to the Song Empire. Whenever there's a crisis, the president sends his envoy in. The Mongols propose an alliance of their own. They say to the Song, hey, we'll keep hitting the Jin in the north, and then you guys can come in and pincer them from the south, we'll crush them between us, everyone wins. And the Song, they really like the sound of that, and they decide that they're going to ally with the Mongols against the Jin. The Mongols pound the Jin from the north, and the Song come in from the south, and now the Jin Empire gets taken off the board. They get wiped out. Gone, see you later, good night Irene. And the Jin territory gets divided up between the Mongols and the Song. The Mongols take the lion's share, but the Song get their cut too, and they expand their borders, and ostensibly everyone is happy. The three great kingdoms of China are now two Mongol kingdoms plus a slightly larger Song Empire. Now, I want you to imagine that you're the emperor of Song China. You've just crushed your mortal enemies, the Jin, the people that you've been fighting for thousands of years. Well, not thousands, but you might as well have been. You've conquered some of their territory. Your empire is now bigger than it's ever been, and it took very little actual effort on your part because the Mongols did most of the work. This is a really, really sweet deal. And, important to note, you've also seen the absolute deep dicking that the Mongols give anyone who pisses off the Mongols. You've seen this dozens of times in the last few decades. You know what happens when you piss off the Mongols. It happened to the Jin, it happened to the Shisha, it happened to the Charismians, it happens everywhere. Don't piss off the Mongols. But you're currently allied to the Mongols. You don't need to fear Mongol dick up in your business. So, here's the question for you, O oh mighty emperor of Song China that you are. With all of this, what's your next move? Do you, A, Enjoy this amazing position you've lucked into and live happily ever after with more territory and wealth than you've had in hundreds of years? Or do you B. Go out of your way to piss off the Khan? Yeah, the song went with option B. They pissed off the Khan. Somewhere along the way, the song decided that they'd been screwed over in this alliance with the Mongols. 
that they somehow got shortchanged on some territory when the Jin Empire was carved up like a Christmas ham, and that the Mongols were holding out on them. I have no idea whether or not this was true, as you can imagine there are a lot of different accounts about this, but the result is all the same. The Song decided that they were promised certain territory and certain cities, and that they didn't get those cities, and that they want those cities. They were very insistent about the idea of the cities. Where's the money? When are you going to get the money? Why aren't you getting the money now? And so on. Even now, there's a smart way to go about this, and a really fucking dumb way to go about this. Keep imagining that you're the Song Emperor. You've made it to this point. You've decided that you're going to get these cities that you feel that you were promised. How do you go about it? Do you A. Send an envoy to the Mongols and try and find a diplomatic solution. Or do you B. Send your army into Mongol territory in a surprise invasion and take the land by force? Yeah, again, option B. Never take option B. If you'll remember in the last two shows, there was a golden rule during this period in history. Do not piss off Genghis Khan. Well, he's dead now. There's a new Khan in charge. And Ogodai, he needs to make sure that everyone knows that the golden rule has been updated. It now reads, do not piss off Ogodai Khan. And he's going to make sure that this update is really, really clear to everyone. At this point in history, Song China is the most advanced civilization on Earth. Scientifically, culturally, academically, philosophically, all of the Lees. It's head and shoulders above the rest of the world. The only other place that comes even close to it at this point is Baghdad, and that's a distant second. Europe isn't even in the race. Song China has 50 million people living in it. It's a big, big deal. The Mongols conquer it. Now, there's a reason that I'm not going granular on this particular conquest, how the Mongols conquer the Song and bring all of China into the Mongolian Empire. And the reason is that I would have to do an entire series of shows devoted exclusively to this subject. It takes the Mongols 50 years and four Khans to complete this military action. Ogodai will be long dead. The conquest will actually be finished by Kublai Khan. His name might be familiar, you might remember it from the top of the show. He's one of Genghis Khan's grandsons, and at the point we're currently in at the story, he's about 10 years old. We'll be getting to Kublai later, don't worry, but I just wanted to sort of bullet point the whole Song Conquest thing, because it's easily the most complicated part of an already complicated story. To give you an idea about how complicated, and to flex on the prep work I do for these shows, I read a book that was entirely about one battle during the Song Conquest. The Song Quest. It's complex. So, here's the bullet points. The Song piss off the Mongols. The Mongols go to war with them. That war takes half a century, and eventually the Song lose, because they lost to the Mongols, and the Mongols always win. And because they lost to the Mongols, the Song lost really, really hard. Ideally, if you're going to lose to anyone, try and make it not the Mongols. And the way that the Chinese deal with this, from a cultural and historical perspective, is they kind of 
rewrite the history. They just decide to call the Mongols Chinese. They just decide that the Mongols are Chinese now. So it's not like we were conquered by the Mongols. No, no, it's just a different type of Chinese people in charge. Nothing to see here. Carry on as you were. It's like whenever Christian Porter loses one of his court cases, it's always the other side backing down in a very humiliating victory for them. How embarrassing for them to settle out of court with this major victory and a lot of money. Chinese history is broken up into dynasties. So you've got the Ming Dynasty and the Han Dynasty and the Qin Dynasty, all that. Well, there's also the Yuan Dynasty. And whenever you see the Yuan Dynasty, it's up to you whether you want to call them Chinese or Mongolian, because the Yuan Dynasty was founded by Kublai Khan. And Kublai Khan is, as we say, Mongolian. He's the grandson of Genghis Khan. So the Yuan Dynasty gets founded, and for the first time in three centuries, China is finally united under a singular ruler, and that rule is Mongolian, no matter what the Chinese histories want to tell you. And a question that might be asked here would be, didn't the Chinese have some kind of system to keep the Mongols out? Some kind of, I don't know, I don't know, like a wall? A big wall? Uh, a massive wall? What's the word I'm going for here? Oh, yeah, 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 a great wall. Why didn't the Great Wall of China keep the Mongols out? Where was the Great Wall of China in all of this? Those Mongolians try to break down my city wall again, they're going to get a big heat-seeking missile surprise! Well, that's a very good question. And the answer is, as most answers tend to be, the answer is complicated. But the short answer is that there was no Great Wall of China at this point. At least not in the way you'd recognize it. You see, most of what we were all taught about the Great Wall of China is actually wrong. In the year 221 BC, so about 1500 years before Genghis Khan, China was first unified under a singular rule. Before that, it was a whole bunch of warring states, but they were all conquered by a guy named Qin Shuang, who is technically the first emperor of China. And Qin Shuang, whenever he conquers a place, he decides that he wants to put up some walls to help him control that place that he just conquered. And that's the genesis of the Great Wall of China. It didn't look anything like it does today, but that's where the little baby wall of China was born. Qin Shuang got people to build a stone wall to help him keep his new borders. Well, it was mostly stone. Some of it was made of wood, and a small but not insignificant ingredient of the wall was people. It was a soilent wall. Whenever one of his, well... Slaves is a strong word. Let's go with independent contractor. Whenever one of these independent contractors died while constructing the wall, they were just sort of cemented into the wall to help keep down construction costs. So there's a couple of hundred thousand people embedded in the Great Wall of China. And this all started in 221 BC, and everyone after this time just sort of added a little bit to the wall a little bit at a time. The wall wasn't built to keep the Mongols out. There was no point where China said, oh, holy shit, the fastest army in the world's coming for us. We'd better knock out the biggest wall in the history of man in less than a week to keep them out. No, that didn't happen. See, when I put it that way, the whole idea is ludicrous. The Great Wall didn't really exist until well after the Mongols left the historical scene. 
If anyone says that the wall was there to stop the Mongols, ask them what Marco Polo thought about the Great Wall during his famous travels through China and Mongolia. Is there any point in Marco Polo's journals where he says, holy shit, look at that massive wall? No, he doesn't. He doesn't mention the wall at all, because it wasn't there. The majority of the Great Wall of China was built by the Ming Empire, which is the one that came after the Yuan, and the Yuan, you recall, were Mongols. The entire project had started a thousand years before, some rulers added to it, most of them neglected it, and by the time of the Khans, it was in disrepair and mostly rubble. So there wasn't a Great Wall at all. The Great Wall that we know and love came much, much later. And anyone that thinks that the Great Wall of China is the only human construction visible from space is a fucking idiot. Just think about it. Take a second and think about it. The Great Wall, at its largest point, is 10 meters wide. That's the same width as most suburban streets. It's one of the longest things in the world, sure, but it's thinner than pretty much any building ever crafted by man. Why the fuck would anyone think that you could see it from space? You could fit five Great Walls of China side by side on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and nobody claims to be able to see the Harbour Bridge from the moon. Thank you for subscribing to Wall Facts. Alright, back to the year 1229, and Ogadai's just been made Khan, and he's just declared war on the planet. The war with China was just one part of it. There's still a lot of planet left. At this point, there's also a Mongol army in the Middle East. This army is only about 30,000 men strong, so the Mongols didn't really consider it to be an army. It was more like a patrol for them. But that's what's been sent out to go and sort out the whole Middle East situation. Bring the Pax Mongolia, make everyone pay taxes, you know, just sort of Jared Kushner the whole situation. The Middle East at this point still has not recovered from the last time the Mongols showed up. What am I saying? The Middle East still hasn't recovered from the last time the Mongols showed up. I mean, as in right now, in 2021, they're still trying to undo the damage that the Mongols wreaked upon them in the 13th century. It was that comprehensive. Remember when Khwarazm was the biggest player in the region and their Shah Muhammad decided to piss off Genghis Khan, so Genghis Khan went along and removed Khwarazm? That had a bit of a lasting effect on the region. But that's all in the past, and in the late 1220s, another force of Mongols shows up in the Middle East. Just to remind everyone of what happens when you piss off people with Khan in their name. And apparently people needed reminding, because a couple of loyal sons of Khwarazam are getting some ideas about trying to rebuild their civilization. You all remember old mate Allah Abdin Muhammad II? The Khwarizmian Shah who watched his empire burn but managed to flee at the last minute, boarding a ship with a Mongol assassination squad literally swimming after him. Remember that from the first show? And then he goes and hides in a shack in the Caspian Sea. Remember him? Remember Muhammad? Yeah, well, while he's hiding in his Caspian shack, when he's there, he sends for his son, a guy named Jalal Adin. And the Khwarizmian Shah, well, former Khwarizmian Shah, Khwarizm doesn't exist anymore, the Khwarizmian Shah tells Jalal that he must avenge his father and avenge his kingdom. He must take back what was conquered by the Mongols, and he must restore the honor of the Muslim people and the Muslim faith. You know, the full Mufasa deal.
And while he's there in this, this shanty that he's been forced to live in because the Mongol hit squads after him, he symbolically takes his sword out and he gifts it to his son, Jalal. And then he does a Master Yoda and he fades away and becomes a Force Ghost. Twilight is upon me, and soon night must fall. And the son of the Charismian Shah, Jalal ad-Din, does what his father commands. He goes into this full Rocky-style training montage. To show it all would take too long. That's called a montage. montage. Even Rocky had a montage. montage. And he goes off and he becomes a great swordsman and he learns how to command armies and he navigates statecraft and he learns espionage and he becomes one of the most feared military commanders in the world. It's basically the entire plot of The Princess Bride. He becomes the Dread Pirate Roberts. Then he explained that the name was the important thing for inspiring the necessary fear. You see, no one would surrender to the Dread Pirate West. And Jalal goes off into exile and he goes to India to amass an army that he can take back to Persia and retake the lands that the Mongols conquered. And Jalal allies with one of the native kingdoms of India and with them he conquers most of the rest of the subcontinent. So Jalal absorbs all of these armies into his army and now he's got a huge army of Indians, the guys who invented chess. And he's going to use this army to march north and retake his homeland. And he conquers his way through the Fertile Crescent, all the way up to Khwarazm. And he recaptures Khwarazm, the kingdom of his father. And he pushes past Khwarazm. He recaptures most of the Middle East. He pushes all the way through the Caucasus Mountains to Georgia. And he actually captures Tbilisi, which has not had a good time in this century. This dude, this Jalal dude, is just a machine. He is one of the greatest generals of his age. He is absolutely unstoppable. And he's doing his rocky thing, and he's conquering, and he's absorbing all these new lands, but it's, it's, this is all just the undercard. He's getting ready to take the main fight to the Mongols and avenge his father and avenge his kingdom. And he's got this massive army that's, by now, it's Indians and Egyptians and Georgians and people from all over the world, over a hundred thousand men strong, and he's going to use this army to march into Mongolia, and there he will wreak his vengeance on the Mongols. I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And he's gathered his army of about a hundred thousand men, he's about to send them down the Khorasan Highway in Persia, and he comes up against a force of 30,000 Mongols that Ogodai had sent to the Middle East to sort of See what was going down with this Jalal dude that they'd heard about. So it's Jalal ad-Din and his 100,000 men, a guy that has trained for almost his entire life to kill Mongols, and he's going up against a force of 30,000 Mongols who are essentially just guys that are out there on patrol, not expecting anything to go down. This is it. This is Jalal ad-Din's big chance, the first blow he's going to strike against his oppressors but it won't be the last. He will avenge his father and his kingdom. He will make the Mongols pay. He will strike a blow for the entire Muslim faith. And with a cry of freedom, he draws his father's sword, he sounds the charge, and he sends his mighty army against this tiny force of 30,000 Mongols, and the Mongols wipe the fucking floor with him. It's not even close. It's embarrassing. The Mongols are outnumbered more than three to one, and they still win handily. 
Jalal ad-Din himself manages to escape with his life, but his army is shattered, and the Mongols go about reminding everyone in the Middle East about who's in charge, and it is most certainly not Jalal ad-Din, it is the Mongols who rule this territory. Jalal ad-Din literally finds a cave to hide in, but for a man of such stature and purpose, he ends up dying like an absolute scrub. As it happens, he runs into some common bandits that just happen to be in the region, and he's robbed and killed in a mugging of all things. And I include that tale to illustrate the danger of assuming that you're the main character of the story. Now it comes time for Ogodai's big campaign. These other two, China and the Middle East, they weren't even his main focus. They were the B-plot to this whole thing. We're not quite done with the Middle East yet, we'll get back there eventually, but now it's time for the main course. Ogadai Khan has decided that there's only one way to prove himself the equal of his father. And that's by doing something his father never did. Ogadai Khan decides to make his mark as the new Khan by invading Europe. Not just reconnaissance, this is a full-on invasion. Now, remember how much damage the Mongols did the last time they were in Europe. How they wiped out entire armies of European crusaders who were already prepared for war. And how the Mongols did that with what was essentially a scouting team. Well, now they're coming back with an army. An actual army. And it's going to be the biggest army the Mongols have ever fielded. Ogodai calls a Kurultai, because you've got to call a Kurultai, and he tells everyone that Operation Europe is happening. And he makes a pronouncement. Guess what, everyone? You're all in the army now. Well, maybe not quite that big. But what he does is he conscripts the firstborn son of every single family in the Mongol Empire. And this is a big empire, remember. This is Mongolia, and most of China, and most of the Middle East. That's a lot of firstborn sons. Absolutely everyone in these regions, your firstborn is now in an army pointed straight at Europe. Giddy up! This army is massive. It's at least 150,000 people strong. They just reconquered Persia with 30,000 men, to give you an idea of what's happening here. And they conquered Europe a decade ago with less than 20,000. Now they're coming with a force of 150,000 Mongol horsemen. And this army, it's a who's who of people who will fuck up your day. Most of the dogs of war are still in the army. A few of Genghis Khan's sons are in it, a few of his grandsons. There are three people in this army who will one day be the Khan. And the whole thing is being led by Subutai, who is the goat. When this army hits Europe, people literally think that the biblical apocalypse is happening because it's as close as anything will ever get, having the Mongol all-stars come marching over the hill. The army rolls through the Caucasus Mountains, and unlike the last time, they know the way. Ain't nobody wasting time now. And like a swarm of locusts, they destroy everything in their path. The tribes of European steppe peoples that live there, they get wiped out. They get wiped out to the extent that two generations from this point, Marco Polo will use the piles of bones as landmarks. How do I get to Xanadu? Follow the human bone road. Follow the human bone road? 
follow the human burn road. Follow, 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 follow the human burn road. And the Mongol tide of darkness rolls towards Europe, just like it did last time. And just like the last time, nobody seems to give a shit, which is just amazing. Every time the Mongols go on the march, people just seem to act like it won't be death on a stick this time. And every time, death is indeed on a stick. People are fleeing in terror, carrying nothing more than what they were wearing at the time when the Mongols showed up and they just ran. And these people run to the west and they say, the Mongols are coming, commence pants shitting, and nobody in these European kingdoms cares. Nobody remembers the last time that the Mongols came in and wiped the floor with absolutely everyone, and that was only 15 years ago. When your mortal enemies come knocking on your door and say, please let us in, we'll do anything, we all have to band together because the end of the world is coming, then you'd think people might take notice. But nope, same dumb racist shit happens all over again. Ah, the Mongols, they can't be that bad. Surely. They might have killed the Georgians and the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Kipchak and the Cuman and the Palafsi and the Turks and the Karachitan and the Khwarazm and the Abyssinians and the Egyptians and the Mamluks and the Charismians a second time and the Jinn and the Song and the Shisha. But aside from those guys, who have the Mongols really beaten? I mean, that's not going to happen to us. The only people who seemed to take the Mongols seriously were the Muslims. The Muslim nations, so people like the Egyptians and the Abbasids, actually sent envoys all through Europe looking for help to fight the Mongols. They went as far as Scotland looking for allies to help them fight the Mongols. Things were that bad. You need to remember that all of Europe at this point was on a crusade against the Muslims. Both sides were being commanded by a god that they very much believed in to kill the other side, and yet the Muslims are going and saying, yeah, there's something out there that scares us more than your God and my God put together. And the Europeans told the Muslims to go fuck themselves. Because somehow they'd completely forgotten the utter spanking that Subutai had given them a few years before. And they still believed that the Mongols were, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, they still believed that the Mongols were on their side. They still thought that this was a Christian army commanded by a Christian king, a guy called Prester John, and that if this Prester John wanted to kill Muslims, they were going to do everything they could to help him. At no point does it occur to anyone that 15 years ago, Subodai showed up and said there's no such thing as Prester John, and then proceeded to murder half a million people. That somehow doesn't factor into anyone's thinking. And at this point, it's worth doing a quick recap on religion in the Mongol Empire, because it's important. It isn't important to the Mongols, but it seems to be very important to everyone else in this time period. Because the rest of the so-called civilized world is now fighting the Fifth Crusade to determine which flavor of ancient Mesopotamian blood god is the correct one. The Christians and the Muslims are in World War V because they both believe in the same god, but they're violently opposed about whether his favorite color is red or blue, or some equally nonsensical metaphysical bullshit. The Mongols do not give a shit about god. Not even the more religious among them. Guys like Kublai Khan later will be quite religious, and even he seems pretty agnostic for this period. 
the best way I can sum up Mongol theology is as a sort of form of watchmaker theory. You know that theological argument that the believers like to drop, that life is too complex for it to have evolved naturally so that there has to be a creator? If you find a watch in the desert, you don't assume that it came into being through a series of random events. You assume that it was created by a watchmaker. So, since life is so complicated, there's no way it could have occurred through hundreds of trillions of random events over billions of years. Yeah, it's a dumb argument, but it's all they have. Well, the Mongols had their own version of that. Their religion went like this. We, the Mongols, are the most badass motherfuckers on the planet. We are the mightiest warriors and nobody conquers, pillages, and rapes like the Mongols do. There has never been a more perfect killing machine than the Mongol horde. Ergo, there is no way that we came into being accidentally. You don't accidentally create the biggest badasses in history. So that means that there has to be a god that created us. And the reason that there's an earth is that the biggest badasses in history needed somewhere to do all of their conquering, raping, and pillaging, so that's why everything else exists. So, logically, there's a god, he's Mongolian, and he wants us to kill everyone that isn't. That was their religion, and they didn't really care beyond that. You want to pray towards Mecca, or rub some rosary beads, or wave a gourd, or whatever shenanigans your religion tells you to do, whatever, the Mongols don't care, just don't go rubbing it at anyone's face. And thus is the entire scope of the Mongol religion. To that end, they were pretty tolerant of other religions. If you were a subject, then you could call God whatever the hell you wanted. Jesus, Allah, Buddha, they didn't care. To the Mongols, it was all the same thing. If you wanted to create stupid little rituals like kneeling on a rug and facing a city, or drinking wine and eating a biscuit, who were they to judge? You're obviously reinforcing the awesome Mongol god of Mongols, you're just jamming to your own beat. The Mongols didn't care what you believed, as long as you behaved yourself and you prayed for the health and the prosperity of the Khan. That was it. Other than that, you do the voodoo that you do. Oh, we're Christians, we bring the word of Jesus. What's a Jesus? Well, he's God. Oh, you mean the guy who made us into the awesome killbots that we are today? Yeah, sure, whatever, we like the Jeebus, just go and do your thing. And this becomes a big deal when the Christians, who always believe that everything is always about them at all times, they see that the Mongols are not practicing Muslims, and that the Mongols are in fact fighting the Muslims. So the Christians assumed, by a spectacularly flawed syllogism, that all Mongols were, consequently, Christian. Logic has never really gotten on well with Christianity, and this is not going to end well for them. And the European Christians somehow convinced themselves that the Mongols were a version of Christians known as Nestorian Christians. Christianity has a lot of different flavours, each more wacky than the last. Australia's erstwhile Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, He's part of a sect known as Hillsong, which is where everyone gets together in a concert hall and listens to milk-toast faux-rock songs about Jesus and waving their hands about in rapture and giving their money to some incredibly rich dude who totally isn't a huckster who tells them that money is evil so they should punish poor people. Somehow they don't consider this weird. Anyway, a Nestorian Christian is... You know what? I still don't know. 
I've researched this and I know less than when I started. If you take even a cursory look at the inner workings of Christianity, it's just batshit fucking mental. It's gobbledygook. I have no idea how it ever caught on, let alone to the extent that it did. None of it makes any sense. Think about it. Imagine with me. Try and picture Christianity tabula rasa. You've never heard of it before, and suddenly someone takes you to a Christian church, and there's a statue of a spectacularly muscular guy stapled to a log in obvious agony, and then the person who's showing you says, this is our savior, we invoke him by ritualistically miming his violent execution, and he's also made of bland crackers and he watches you masturbate. Nestorian Christianity is even weirder than that. So in about 450 AD, there was a guy called Nestorius, who was just like some random dude. And this Nestorius dude had some views on what Jesus was, and alright, we need to back up a bit here. So back then, in the 400s, there was a bit of debate about whether or not Jesus was mortal or a god or the son of God or a poltergeist or if he started out as mortal and then became a god or if he was a space alien or a wizard or a leprechaun or whatever crazy bullshit you decided to come up with on any particular day. And you could come up with some crazy bullshit because the Bible has a shitload of contradictions in it and the whole thing falls apart if you pay too much attention to it. It's like The Last Jedi. It's a nonsensical sequence of dumb vignettes that hasn't been plotted out, written by someone with a god complex, and there is no respect for the intelligence of the audience. It's exactly like The Last Jedi. So back in the day, you could make a pretty handy living by fixing the plot holes in the Bible in a way that still makes Jesus seem at least remotely like he could have possibly existed, and wasn't a series of unrelated ideas written on the back of coasters hundreds of years after the event. One of those guys doing punch-up on the G's was Nestorius. He gets his own sect called Nestorianism, which he decided to take on the road to Asia. And it makes no fucking sense, but then again, None of it did. Nestorianism is fucking wild. Look, I'm a very devout nihilist. My faith is pure. I know for certain that there is no such thing as a god, and that when we die there is nothing but the sweet, blissful release of oblivion. All religions seem equally ridiculous to me, but Nestorianism is something else. It's some weird shit. Just in case you think I'm being particularly blithe here, this is an excerpt on a discussion on the differences between Nestorianism and mainstream Christianity. This is from the Vatican Archives. If you have any idea what the fuck anyone is talking about, please feel free to email me at historygotime at gmail.com. Quote, A brief definition of Nestorian Christology can be given thus. Jesus Christ, who is not identical with the Son, but personally united with the Son, who lives in him, is one hypostasis and one nature, organima. However, Nestorius himself believes that the Word, which is eternal, and the flesh, which is not, came together in a hypostatic union to become Jesus Christ. Jesus, thus being both fully man and God, of two substantia, but of one prosopon. End quote. 
The whole religion is just the nonsense ravings of crazy people. I got that entire quotation verbatim from an article written by the Vatican about Nestorianism. I replaced one and only one of their ridiculously arcane nonsense words with the name of a character from Frank Herbert's Dune and I guarantee 99% of you don't know which one. If you're wondering why it matters whether Jesus was diaphysitic or monophysitic, what's the difference, it's all Jesus, then know that at most points in the last 2,000 years, you would have been tortured to death for asking that question. When the Anabaptists split from the Protestants, the only thing they did differently was to say, hey, that first baptism, that one doesn't really count because you're only a baby, you didn't know what you were doing, so you couldn't have agreed to it. You should have a second baptism, you know, just to make it all legit. That's it. That's the only difference between Protestants and Anabaptists. There was a war and thousands of people were killed. That's way less difference than, say, Han shooting first or Greedo shooting first, and there was a goddamn war about it. You can go to the German town of Munster today and see the scaffolds and gibbets where people were ritualistically tortured to death with glowing hot metal tongs because the only thing they believed differently was that you should have one extra baptism. These people are all fucking insane and we need to stop them from having positions of power. But I digress. The reason I include this breakdown is because the Mongols are coming to invade Christendom, and the Christians are going to say shit like this to the Mongols and act like the Mongols are going to know what the fuck they're talking about. And then they're going to be shocked when the Mongol response is to go, what the fuck are you talking about, and then kill them. Somehow the European Christians, who believed that Jesus was always Jesus, thought that the Mongols were Christians who believed that Jesus became Jesus. Or the other way around, who the fuck knows. But the long and the short of it is that the Christians thought that they were on the same team as the Mongols because of their unparalleled ability to both fabricate and then completely believe in their utter and unabashed nonsense. And then the Mongols are going to demonstrate just how little they care about religion. The Christians are about to learn that there's a higher power than Jesus, and that power is Mongol. Because no matter how much they pray, Jesus doesn't save the day. Much of the extant writings of the time from Europeans in this period talk of the Mongol invasion as the apocalypse. They call the Mongols Gog and Magog, the mythical demon people from the book of Revelations who are the harbingers of the end of the world, of Judgment Day. So I've set the stage here. Ogodai Khan has sent a massive army of Mongols through the Caucasus Mountains to make everything up to the Atlantic Ocean into Mongolia. And they're just about to arrive on the doorstep of Europe and let everyone know who the new boss is. Now the Mongols don't just show up in Europe and start slaughtering. They try a bit of diplomacy first. They send letters to each of the kingdoms they come across, and they address the rulers of these kingdoms personally. Georgia, Kievan Rus, Hungary, Poland, the Holy Roman Empire. Don't get me started on what that was, by the way, that's another show. But they send letters to all of these kings, and these letters pretty much say, Hey, guess what? You're all part of Mongolia now, so come along, bow before the new Khan, and everything will be sweet, otherwise we're going to kill everyone. 
And for some reason, almost universally, each kingdom tells the Mongols to go fuck themselves. Now, I can understand wanting to maintain some sovereignty and wanting to go down fighting or whatever, but it's not like the Mongols were an unknown quantity at this point. They kicked the ever-loving shit out of these places only 15 years ago, and now they're back with an army 10 times the size. Some pride-swallowing might be in order here. But no. The Mongols hit the Russian states first. And quick note, remember that Russia isn't united at this point. It's a few dozen city-states known collectively as Kiev and Rus, but we're going to be calling it Russia. One of these Russian states actually sends an envoy back to the Mongols, saying, over our dead bodies. Ergodai Khan gets this letter and he looks it over and he says, your proposal is acceptable. And that city-state is burned to the ground and everyone's killed. The priests and the nuns hide in the church of this city and they claim sanctuary and they say to the Mongols, you wouldn't dare attack holy ground, would you? And the Mongols say, ha ha ha, that's really funny. And then these people say, our God will protect us. Don't attack lest you incur his wrath. And the Mongols think that's even funnier and then they set the church on fire. And anyone who runs out of the church to escape the fire gets impaled. So you get the choice of being impaled or burned to death. I can just hear the Mongols saying, Where's your Messiah now, see? And suffice it to say, no holy wrath was incurred. Jesus didn't show up. They do this all over Russia. Again, in the winter, too. They invade Russia in the winter. The Mongols are the only people in history who have a good time attacking Russia in the winter. They get to the biggest city in Russia at the time, Kiev, which is the most heavily fortified in the entire region. It's got a big stone wall around it, and the Russians think that this cavalry army of steppe people might have a hard time with stone walls. They haven't learned the lesson that the Muslims and the Chinese have learned, and that's that the Mongols have gotten really, really good at siegecraft. The people of Kiev see the Mongols start building these massive siege weapons outside the city. Among other things, they have cannons. Cannons must have seemed like something directly out of hell to the people at this time. They'd never seen anything more advanced than a ballista, and here was something that made a noise like thunder, spat fire, and shot a lead ball faster than the eye could see. Imagine how terrifying that would be if you'd never encountered gunpowder weapons before. But the Mongols had weapons even scarier than that. One of them was their catapults. Now, you might think that a catapult isn't scary. It just lobs a rock. No big deal, right? It's not even a counterweighted machine like a trebuchet. It's clearly an inferior siege weapon. And maybe it was. But it was more about what the Mongols put into their catapults. Because it wasn't all rocks. The Mongols realized that the city of Kiev might have been surrounded by a stone wall, but it wasn't stone on the inside. Most of the buildings were made of wood. And these wooden buildings had thatch roofs. All of this shit was highly flammable. Are you seeing where this is going? But where do you get flammable materials in Russia in the middle of winter? There isn't exactly an abundance of lumber. Well, those prisoners we took, they look plenty flammable. 
Let's set some people on fire and then fling them screaming into Kiev. That's the original Molotov cocktail. According to the Russian records, those that survived anyway, when the people of the city saw the Mongols building their siege weapons, everyone in Kiev started weeping. They knew that they were done for. At one point, the Mongols killed one of the more higher-up dukes of the region, and they captured his signet ring, which is what they used to stamp orders so that you know that they're real, they come from the actual guy. The Mongols captured that, and they start sending letters out to local towns and kingdoms saying, uh, hey, yeah, look, everything's fine now. The Mongols have gone. They just left. Uh, everyone can come back now. Uh, we're all fine here. We're fine. How are you? Boring conversation anyway. And people who managed to flee the Mongols originally came back, and what do you know, there's still Mongols there, so they're all killed. The Mongols end up ruling Russia for the next 300 years, until eventually they were ousted by Ivan the Terrible. The same thing happens to Hungary, they get a thorough Mongoling. Execute Order 66. At this point, it should be clear to everyone in Europe that they should be throwing aside whatever grudges they have and banding together to fight the Mongols. But they're all doing the opposite of that. There's so many stupid little wars going on, most of them related to Jesus. There's still the Fifth Crusade, that's always been a thing in this whole story. Gotta keep sending troops down there for that. Old grudges, things that should have been put to bed decades ago. Even while Russia and Hungary are being destroyed by the Mongols, nations like Prussia and Sweden and Poland are attacking from the other side, trying to grab territory, all the while not bothering to think about what will happen when they suddenly share a border with the Mongols. At this point in history, Frederick the Great is personally fighting with the Pope. In fact, at this point in history, there's a Pope, an anti-Pope, and an anti-anti-Pope. I'm not making that up. That's not one of Damo's little jokes that he puts in this show. There was literally an anti-anti-pope. Apparently, you can have a double negative when it comes to popes. Eventually, parts of Europe start to get their shit together, and they form an army to fend off the Mongols. So while the Mongols are tied up in Hungary, toweling up the Hungarian army, the Polish, of all people, under Henry the Pious, ally with an army of Bohemians, Is this the real life? and they march off to hit the Mongols from behind while they're feasting on the corpse of Hungary. This combined Polish-Bohemian army is about 90,000 men strong. This is the largest army that Europe has thrown together since the height of the Roman Empire, and they're going to ride to the rescue like Gandalf and save the day by flanking the Mongols. Well, Subodai sees it coming, and he says, no, we won't be having any of that. And he sends a portion of his forces off to deal with this army. 30,000 men out of a Mongol army of 150,000. So now you've got 30,000 men against the largest army that Europe's put together since the Romans, 90,000 men. Long story short, the Mongols prevent these two armies from actually meeting up and combining forces. Divide and conquer, classic Sun Tzu. The largest number of troops that Europe has put together since Rome doesn't even slow down a division of the Mongol army. 
They are absolutely carved apart. The Mongol method of counting enemy casualties was to cut one of the ears off of every corpse of the battlefield, universal soldier style. Do you hear me? By the end of this battle, the Battle of Leibniz, the Mongols have nine wagons overflowing with ears. Their commander, the king, Henry the Pious, he doesn't make it out either. What happens is that his consort, his poor girlfriend, shows up a few days later and she goes through the corpses on the battlefield trying to find his body, and apparently he had six toes on one foot, and that was how she was able to identify him, because they never actually did find his head. The survivors of the Battle of Leibniz number in the dozens. There were some Knights Templar at this battle, and the Knights Templar like to think of themselves as the most badass fighters in the universe. Anyway, they're absolutely stunned at the Mongols. The Knights Templar were preparing to go down to the Holy Land and recapture Jerusalem basically on their own, and then they see the Mongols wiping out everything, and they are just absolutely terrified. It's an existential crisis for them. A couple of them hightail it back to the Vatican, and they report in, and the Pope asks them, what is it going to take to stop these Mongols? And the Knights Templar basically say, the Atlantic Ocean. That's the only thing that will stop them. And like I said, the main Mongol force at this point was still tied up with the Hungarian army. And the Hungarian army is now, after the Battle of Leibniz, the largest army in Europe. And it engages the Mongols. And I'm not going to get granular with this battle because it's an almost exact replica of what Subutai did to destroy the Russian Confederated Army during his cavalry raid 15 years before. It's basically identical. The Europeans line up in front of the Mongols, the Mongols run away, the Europeans think they're top shit and chase the Mongols, the Mongols keep running, and then they string the Hungarian army along for nine days, and then they get to a river, they turn around and attack and just absolutely annihilate everyone. It's freakishly similar. It's almost exactly the same as what happened in Russia 15 years before. During my research for this show, I initially double-checked to make sure that I wasn't covering the same battle twice. It was exactly the same. The long shot is that the Mongols wipe out yet another massive European allied army. The one thing that sets this particular battle apart, though, is what Subodai does here is something very special indeed. He invents the creeping barrage. Subodai's army's got a whole bunch of rockets and cannons and artillery, so he orders them to fire on the European army. Now, these are ancient guns. They're inaccurate as all shit. They'd be lucky to have killed ten guys. But it's scary to have that happening to you. And what Subodai does is he has his guns bombard an area. Not an army, but an area. And then he has the guns slowly creep their fire forwards a few meters at a time. And behind this bombardment, being screened by it, he advances his troops. So they're being protected by a wall of flaming death until they're right on top of the Hungarian army. And this is what's known as a creeping bombardment, because it creeps forward while you use it to cover your advancing army. The reason that this is important is because France, England, and Germany will all claim to invent this halfway through the First World War, in about 1916. Subodai is doing it in 1237. And just imagine that you're part of this Hungarian army. You've never in your entire life encountered anything that has exploded before. Explosives are just something that just do not exist in your world. 
Things might burst or pop, but nothing in your entire life has ever exploded. The loudest thing that you've ever heard would be thunder or a church bell or something. You have never, in the entirety of your existence or the existence of anyone you've ever known, none of you has ever encountered gunpowder or explosives of any kind. And now you're getting shelled by artillery. You see a flash of light from the other side of the river, then a boom like thunder, and then a couple of seconds later the ground in front of you explodes in the loudest noise you've ever heard in your life. It bursts your eardrums because it's so loud. You feel the shockwave like a punch to the guts, and you see a fully armored knight turn into a pink mist in the blink of an eye. The Mongols must have genuinely seemed like they were demons from hell especially when they started taking another few wagons worth of ears. The Mongols have just wiped out, utterly wiped out, three of the largest armies that Europe has ever assembled. Armies that were put together specifically to fight the Mongols. And they didn't even make a dent. It is now painfully clear to everyone in Christendom that there is not an army anywhere in the world that can stand against the Mongols. There is absolutely nothing they can do to stop them. The Mongols are coming and they are going to end life as we know it, and there is nothing at all that we can do to stop them. Now, the Knights Templar might have thought that the Atlantic Ocean would stop the march of the Mongols. An argument could be made that they'd have had trouble crossing into England. Most armies have. It's probable that they would have been stopped well before that point because Europe was much, much more heavily forested back in those days and the Mongols wouldn't have been able to navigate their horses through forest and there wouldn't have been enough pasture and meadow to feed their horses anyway. So they would have been stuck at the Black Forest. But the point remains that the only things stopping the Mongol hordes were geographical. There was nothing that any human could do that had even a hope of slowing them down. The end was coming. Mongol scouts were spotted in Austria and Italy. And Europe braced itself for the end of the world. And it never came. Once again, the Mongols just disappeared. They vanished without a trace, like Batman. And the reason that the Mongols never pushed this advantage and never went on with their inevitable conquest of Europe was because there was a sudden cruel tie. Everyone had to get back to Mongolia as quickly as possible and show up at this cruel tie. No excuses, drop everything, it's cruel tie time. And it's possibly the biggest counterfactual in world history, the biggest what if of all time. Because there is no doubt that Western civilization as we know it would have ceased to exist if this Kuroltai hadn't happened. But it did, and the conquest was over. Everyone's going back to Mongolia. Because Ogadai Khan has just died. You ever been out for a weekend with the boys and you're on the beers and you're hitting the liquor so hard that one of you actually dies and short circuits your conquest of Europe? Yeah, Ogodai had that kind of bender. It turns out that drinking 10 liters of hard liquor every day isn't great for your health. So Ogodai has a stroke, and now he's deader than Disco, and now we need a new Khan. And the only way you can get a new Khan is with a Kuril tie, 
and a Kurultai is something that absolutely every Mongol has to attend. And the title of Khan is now up for grabs. There's no direct line of succession for Khans. As I said in another show, it doesn't automatically go to the eldest. It has to go to a vote. And Ogadai got the top job first time because Genghis Khan said that he would. And everyone recognized the wisdom of Genghis Khan's counsel. You don't second guess the Genj. But now there's a power vacuum. It's open season. And remember when Genghis made that object lesson where he got the bunch of arrows and said that if we're all united and none of us fight each other, then we're unbreakable? Yeah, everyone's forgotten that lesson. It's about to go downhill very quickly. It's a free-for-all. And the exact thing that Genghis Khan went to great lengths to prevent from happening is happening. He'd be rolling in his grave if anyone knew where it was. Now, I'll take a quick tangent here, but it's really instructive. Dan Carlin's wonderful series on the Mongols goes into great depth on the upcoming feud among the children of Genghis Khan, and to illustrate the point that the children haven't grown up in the same privation as the father and how cultural values shift and all that, he uses an example of a modern-day figure. Dan Carlin quotes Bill Cosby, in one of Cosby's aphorisms about parenthood and growing up poor in Philadelphia and other trite phrases that he rattled off in between bouts of nonsensical gibberish. Oh, I'm going zip zop And weirdly, instead of illustrating a point about the family of Genghis Khan, Dan Carlin accidentally shows how fickle history is. Because Genghis Khan is a monster that became an icon, but Bill Cosby is an icon who became a monster. Dan's series was made about a decade ago, back when people still thought that Bill Cosby was an upstanding and saintly figure worth quoting for life wisdom, before we found out that he was a massive fucking rapist. And it's interesting that only through hindsight we can link these previously unrelated historical figures. Genghis Khan is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most prolific rapist in the history of humanity. But Bill Cosby is right up there. And previously, you never would have conflated those two figures. Anyway, it's Kuril time. We need a new Khan. And this next bit is going to get a bit murky. I apologize for that. It's a complex bit of history that I'm trying to crush down to something where you don't have to remember too many of Genghis Khan's family members' names, and that's not easy. So the Khan of the Mongols, that's the position of Khan, not the guy called Khan, the Khan of the Mongols has absolute power in the most massive empire in human history to this point, or any point. But he only gets that power once he becomes Khan. The Khanhood itself goes to a vote. The Mongol Empire is divided up into states, and each of these states is ruled over by something like a governor or a premier or something. And these are all siblings, children or sometimes grandchildren, of Genghis Khan himself. And each of these siblings wants the top job. And each of them is pretty much eligible. There are a few standout candidates, and a few people who have absolutely no hope whatsoever, 
but pretty much any of them can run for Khan. Throw your hat in the ring, see who gets voted in as Khan, and that's what this Kurul tie is for. There's a vote for the Khan. But there's a massive problem. One of the grandsons of Genghis Khan, who is like a governor of one of the provinces that make up the empire, this grandson is named Batu, and Batu has decided that he's going to boycott this Kurultai. He decides he's not going to go. This is a huge, huge deal. Because the Kurultai is void if one of the governors doesn't attend. You can't get a quorum. No quorum, no vote, no Khan. So the mighty Mongol horde is just sitting around twiddling its thumbs because there's no one in charge. They can't go to war because there's no Khan, they can't get a Khan without a Kuril Tai, and they can't have a Kuril Tai because Batu won't go. Now, why is Batu not attending the Kuril Tai? Why is he sabotaging the Empire when it's at its most vulnerable? Well, because Batu is the son of Joki. You all remember Joki. He's the eldest son of Genghis Khan and Bort. The one we can't be sure was actually the son of Genghis Khan. The one who suddenly came down with a bad case of assassination. Yeah, Batu is his son. And he's real sketchy about who he accepts a drink from. So he's decided he's not going to show up at Murderpalooza 1247. Batu isn't going to the Kurultai because he thinks that he's going to be murdered. And there's a good reason he thinks that. Because Batu isn't the favourite to be voted in as the new Khan. He's not the rank outsider, but he isn't the favourite. The favourite for the top job is a guy called Guyuk. Guyuk is Ogudai's oldest son. Being the oldest son of the previous Khan doesn't automatically get you the job, but it is a pretty hefty thing to have on your resume when it comes time for the vote. And Guyuk also has something of a history of trying to murder Batu from time to time. Guyuk and Batu are cousins, and they do not get along. They've had a history of bad blood for a long time now. They were both commanders during the European War, and they disagreed with how each other conducted themselves in battle, and it came down to name-calling, and they came to blows on more than one occasion. Batu was a cautious commander, as far as Mongols go, while Guyuk, both on the battlefield and off it, is what historians like to call a fucking lunatic. This Guyuk cat is a real Ramsay Bolton character. He is a cruel and sadistic nutjob, even by Mongolian standards. Ogodai even threatened to execute him. His own son, remember? On one occasion, for all of the crazy shit that Guyuk was doing. So think about how bugfuck crazy you have to be for your own father, who is also the king of the Mongol horde, who himself is the son of Genghis Khan. How fucking nuts do you have to be for that guy to consider putting you down? Guyuk was off the goddamn chain. So Batu won't go to the Kurultai because he's afraid that Guyuk will be elected Khan and have him executed. And he believes that Guyuk will try to kill him because Guyuk has previously hinted at doing just that, specifically when he said, When I'm elected Khan, I'm going to kill you. Bit of a hint there. 
So Batu short-circuits the whole political process by boycotting the Kurultai entirely. Batu can't go, then Guyuk can't get elected, and Batu can't get his head cut off. It's a cunning stratagem, let's see if it plays out. And they do this year after year. The Facebook event keeps getting sent out, and Batu is a firm maybe every time. Eventually, everyone gets the shits with this. The entire Mongol Empire can do absolutely nothing until there's a Khan. So they decide that this state of affairs can't continue anymore. And in the year of 1246, there's another Kurultai, and this time, all of the great houses of the Mongols decide that they're going to go ahead and elect a new Khan, regardless of whether or not Batu shows up. Batu, if you want the interests of your family represented, then you're going to have to turn up, otherwise we're just going to do it without you. And again, Batu doesn't show up because he likes his head where it is, but he decides to send a representative in his place. And the Grand Kurultai of 1246 goes ahead, and things are about to get really spicy. Because it's at this point that two major narratives in this tale collide. We've heard the Mongol side of the intervening years between the almost conquest of Europe and now, but we haven't heard the European side. So right when the Mongols are going to conquer the entirety of Europe, and Europe can do absolutely jack shit about it, the Mongols just disappear. Gone and every nation in Europe is just sitting there going, what the pluperfect fuck just happened? They can't believe it. They thought that they were the center of the universe. They thought they had the best armies, they thought that God was blessing them, and then suddenly this army of techno-zombies comes out of nowhere, wipes the absolute floor with everyone, and it's not even close, and then instead of actually conquering anything, they disappear without a trace. Who does that? What the shit? Meanwhile, the Europeans, they want to know what the shit. What the hell is going on? So they get together a few people, and these people, their mission is to go to Mongolia and try and find out who the hell these people are and what their deal is. Because you have to remember, at this time, nobody knows where Mongolia is. At least not in the West. China knew it was somewhere to the north and it spat out demon people on the reg, but Europe had no idea who these people were, and they had no idea that the nation of Mongolia even existed. They knew that China existed, because that's where they got their ridiculously overpriced silk, but basically they knew it was a place to the Far East, and that's pretty much all anyone knew about it. So the Pope, of all people gets together a group of people, and he sends them looking for the Mongols. And this is great for historians, because we get a new primary source here. One of this group sent to find Mongolia and figure out the Mongols is a guy named Giovanni da Pian del Carpini, or John of Plano Carpini. This dude is a high-level diplomat in this period. He's a Franciscan monk and a disciple of St. Francis of Assisi, who, as we all know, is the most overrated saint. The world's most overrated saint. Francis of Assisi. And he gets picked to figure out what the whole deal is with the Mongols. And this takes place in 1245, which is decades before Marco Polo. So if anyone was taught in school that Marco Polo was the first person to give a detailed account of Asia, sorry, 
the education system let you down again. And even then, a guy called William of Rubric was the first, but he didn't document things as well as John of Plano Carpini. But regardless, it definitely wasn't Marco Polo. John of Plano Carpini and his papal espionage squad have two missions. One, they're going to spy on the Mongols and report back to the Pope. And two, they're going to hand deliver a letter from the Pope to the quote-unquote King of the Mongols. I'll get to this in good time, this letter from the Pope. But remember that there is a letter from the Pope, because that's going to become important in a little bit. But that's John of Plano Carpini's brief. Go to Mongolia, deliver the letter, figure out who the hell these people are and what their deal is. Now, John of Plano Carpini has no fucking idea how to get to Mongolia. He doesn't even know that there's a place called Mongolia. He just knows that there's Mongols, and he makes the logical leap that they had to come from somewhere. So he just sort of heads east, looking for Mongolia. And then it becomes pretty clear that he's going to have an easy time finding Mongolia, because he can just follow the human bone road. Follow, 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 follow the human bone road. And he follows this trail of corpses until he gets into Mongolian proper. And once he and his group get into Mongolia, they run into some actual Mongols. They can't really communicate with each other. This is a problem that's going to take a long time to get resolved, and it's going to be a huge problem very shortly. Nobody speaks the other's language. Nobody speaks anything like the other's language. So things have to go through about five different levels of translation. I'm not 100% on the linguistics of this, so any language historians will have to forgive me, but it goes something like Italian into Latin into Hungarian into Kipchak Turkish into Mongolian. There's some backstroke of the West involved. But what's significant is that the Mongols that John of Plano Carpini has just run into happens to include Batu Khan. Batu just happened to be the governor of the westernmost edge of the Mongol Empire, which, coincidentally, is the first part of Mongolia any Europeans would get to. And eventually, Batu figures out that these guys are envoys, which they kind of are. And he figures that these envoys are on their way to the Kurultai to pledge their submission to the new Khan that's about to be elected, which they most certainly are not. They have no idea that any of this is going down, but that doesn't matter. Batu says, yeah, you guys, you have to go to the Kurultai with all the other envoys. I'd take you there, but I don't want to go because my cousin will murder me. Wouldn't it be great if there was some common solution to both of our problems? Oh wait, there is. How would you guys like to go to the Kurultai for me? And John of Plano Carpini and his group, who were sent out to find the Mongol ruler but had no idea where to even start, are suddenly being escorted to the Mongol election by Genghis Khan's own grandson. John of Plano Carpini gets to the Kurultai, and it must have looked like nothing he'd ever seen before. It's like a thousand Woodstocks altogether. He's absolutely gobsmacked. He says that there are over 4,000 envoys there, 
There are Russian dukes and Egyptian sultans. There are people he's never even heard of, people from the subcontinent. So you've got Indians and Bangladeshis and whatnot there. For a guy that vaguely knew about the Middle East from the Bible, and whose only knowledge of Asia a year ago was that he kind of knew that it was there, and for someone that didn't know that there was a rest of the world beyond that, suddenly seeing it all in front of him at the same time, it must have been quite the head fuck. And John of Plano Carpini decides that he better start writing this shit down, which is how we've come to know what happens at the Great Kuraltai of 1246. So the Mongol ruling families have decided that for the good of the empire, they can't wait for Batu anymore. They have to vote for a new Khan. And they do. And as expected, Guyuk gets the top job. This is the exact situation that Batu feared would happen. So Guyuk is the new Khan, and now everyone gets to have a meeting with the new Khan and show their submission, the whole earth and water thing that has been the custom for everyone since the dawn of time. And one of the people who meets with the new Khan is John of Plano Carpini, who had absolutely no idea when he set out that he was supposed to come and offer submission to the new Khan. This was not in the brochure. And he has no authority to submit to Mongol rule. He doesn't represent any of the Christian nations of Europe. He's just a guy that was sent there to have a look around. But he's here now, and Guyuk Khan brings John of Plano Carpini before him, and he's expecting John to get down on his hands and knees and acknowledge that the Mongols are the true masters of the universe. And this is about to be one of the most massive fuck-ups in the history of the universe. Remember, John of Plano Carpini is a Franciscan monk who has been sent on a mission by the Catholic Pope. There's still a crusade going on against the Muslims, and the Mongols are kind of an unknown. And like I said before, the Christians think that anyone who isn't a Muslim must be a Christian. And John of Plano Carpini gets to this Kuraltai, and he sees a lot of Christians hanging around. There are heaps of Nestorian Christians there, thousands of them. And I'll do that as Michael Caine. Christians, thousands of them. Some of them are even part of Guyuk Khan's entourage. So to John of Plano Carpini, this must mean that the new king of the Mongols, Guyuk Khan, he must be a Christian, right? I mean, there's no other explanation. Well, it turns out there are a lot of other explanations, and John has most certainly picked the most incorrect option. What John of Plano Carpini has ignored is the equally thousands of Muslims and Buddhists and Confucians and Zoroastrians and Hindus and all of the other faiths that are represented here. He's only seeing what he wants to see. Remember, the Mongols don't give a shit about dogma. It's all the same god to them. They believe in a god, but not any particular god. And they really, really don't give a shit about the Jebus. So John of Plano Carpini has his audience with Guyuk Khan, and he thinks, sweet, I'll be able to talk to this guy, Christian to Christian. We've got some common ground here. It's a good icebreaker. And he meets with the Khan, and he hand delivers a letter to the great Khan that was written by Pope Innocent IV. 
This was part of his mission, if you'll recall. He's got a letter from the Pope that he's supposed to hand over to the Khan. And this letter, handwritten by Pope Innocent IV, addressed to whoever was the leader of the Mongols, is one of the craziest things in history. It is one of the dumbest, most insane things that anyone has ever done in the history of apes who can write. What the Pope says in this letter is just... I I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I don't have any other words for it. It's just insane. This particular document is widely regarded among historians as the most idiotic correspondence between world rulers in history. I know this show is all my opinion, and I very often gild the lily, but you can look up the sources on this. Whack Pope Innocent Letter into Google and see what comes up. I'm about to read to you an excerpt from this letter, from the Pope to the Khan, and I'll read it verbatim. Well, it's in Latin, but we'll do it in English. And we know what's in this letter because we have the letter. It's in the Vatican, as well as the letter that Guyuk Khan sent back. It's part of their official archives. So the letter, this is what was actually said. Pope Innocent IV, who has never met the Mongols before, doesn't know the first thing about the Mongols. He's writing them a letter. He's decided to open with this. Quote, God the Father of his graciousness regarding with unutterable loving kindness the unhappy lot of the human race brought low by the guilt of the first man and desiring of his exceeding great charity mercifully to restore with him whom the devil's envy overthrew by a crafty suggestion sent from the lofty throne of heaven down to the lowly region of the world his only begotten son consubstantial with himself who was conceived by the operation of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the forechosen virgin, and there, clothed in the garb of human flesh, and afterwards, proceeding thence by the closed door of his mother's virginity, he showed himself in a form visible to all men. For human nature, being endowed with reason, was meant to be nourished on eternal truth as its choicest food, but, held in mortal chains as a punishment for sin, its powers were thus far reduced that it had to strive to understand the invisible things of reason's food by means of inferences drawn from visible things. End quote. It goes on and on and on like this. Now, if you have any idea what the fuck Pope Innocent IV was talking about, feel free to write in and tell me. Feel free to write to any historian or to the Vatican and tell them, because generations of historians and Catholic archivists have devoted their entire lives to trying to figure out what the fuck he was talking about, and to this day, nobody has a fucking clue. Even if you're familiar with Catholic doctrine, this is really fucking obtuse. I know the story of Christ and the Holy Trinity and all that, and I have trouble piecing together what the Pope was talking about. Imagine if all you knew about Christianity was that there were people in your empire who believed in an invisible guilt wizard who was made out of wine and biscuits. That's all you know, 
Now try and figure out what this dude is on about. Catholics to this day look at this letter and just cringe. And remember that the Khan doesn't speak Latin. This thing has to go through five different languages, and it doesn't even make sense in the original language. You can only imagine what the fuck was getting spit out the other side. Basically, it's a letter from the Pope calling the Mongols naughty for slaughtering Christians, and he's ordering them to stop it or Jesus will be mad. And he wants everyone to live in peace because that's what Jesus preached. You know what? I'm going to read more of this lunatic letter from a madman. Here we go. Quote, Seeing that not only men, but even irrational animals, nay, the very elements which go to make up the world machine, are united by a certain innate law after the manner of the celestial spirits, all of which God the Creator has divided into choirs in the enduring stability of peaceful order, it is not without cause that we are driven to express in strong terms our amazement that you, as we have heard, have invaded many countries belonging both to Christians and to others, and are laying them waste in a horrible desolation, and with a fury still unabated, you do not cease from stretching out your destroying hand to more distant lands, but, breaking the bond of natural ties, sparing neither sex nor age, you rage against all indiscriminately with the sword of chastisement. We, therefore, Following the example of the King of Peace, and desiring that all men should live united in concord in the fear of God, do admonish, beg, and earnestly beseech all of you that for the future you desist entirely from assaults of this kind, and especially from the persecution of Christians, and that after so many and such grievous offences you conciliate by a fitting penance the wrath of divine majesty, which, without doubt, you have seriously aroused by such provocation. Nor should you be emboldened to further commit savagery by the fact that when the sword of your might has raged against other men, Almighty God has, up to the present, allowed various nations to fall before your face. For sometimes he refrains from chastising the proud in this world for the moment, for this reason, that if they neglect to humble themselves of their own accord, he may not only no longer put off the punishment of their wickedness in this life, but may also take a greater vengeance in the world to come. It goes on and on and on like this. It's like ten pages of insane ranting. Now this whole letter is a disaster and the dumbest thing ever written. The last Jedi! Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. But there's one consequence of it that Pope Innocent IV, as fucking idiotic as he was, couldn't have possibly foreseen. The Mongols don't have a word for peace. It's not even in their lexicon. They have a lot of words for war, but they don't have a word for the state of not being at war. The closest word the Mongols have to peace translates as something like, Please, please, I give up, just please stop stabbing me. This tells you a lot about the Mongols. There's a concept known as linguistic relativity, which states that communities experience a different reality based upon their language, which then extends to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that a language's structure determines a speaker's worldview, and since Mongolian doesn't have a word for peace, it's not a concept that they are physically capable of understanding. 
So Guyuk Khan is having a hard time trying to come to terms with a letter that both says, please, I give up, please stop stabbing me, and also, if you don't stop stabbing me, there's going to be trouble. And even though Guyuk Khan was regarded as a lunatic even by his own people, I can't fault his response here. He says to John of Plano Carpini, What the pluperfect fuck is this guy on about? Did he just threaten me? Is this a declaration of war? This is a declaration of war, right? So Guyuk Khan sends back a letter of his own. And this letter essentially says, Please explain. The letter is great, and I recommend everyone go and seek it out, but after all of that, I will spare you the direct quotation. Basically, the Khan sends a letter back to the Pope which says, Who the fuck are you? What the fuck are you talking about? And why should we care? We just kicked the shit out of all of your armies, so we're pretty sure our god is the correct one. If your Jeebus wanted us to stop kicking the ever-loving shit out of you, why didn't he stop us from kicking the ever-loving shit out of you? So either you come to us personally and submit before the throne, or we're going to go over there and fuck you up right proper. Yours sincerely, Guyuk Khan. Pope Innocent IV had been told, by people who had personally witnessed how unstoppable the Mongol army was, the Pope had been told that the Mongol army was indeed unstoppable. And his official response was to declare war on these people. I will never, ever cease to be amazed that Christianity caught on in the first place, and I'm even more amazed that it keeps going. They should have been wiped out through their own stupidity thousands of times over. But they keep getting lucky. In this case, they never had to face the now very pissed off Guyuk Khan because Guyuk himself had problems on the home front, specifically his cousin Batu. Guyuk sends a message to Batu. He tells Batu that it's time to stop playing silly buggers. Guyuk has been elected Khan, now he's ordering Batu, as an official act of kindliness, to come out and kneel before the throne. And this time, Batu has no choice but to obey. He has to go to the capital of Karakorum and bow before the throne. Now, Batu doesn't want to do this because he's probably going to be executed when he gets there, but if he doesn't go, then he will definitely be executed, so off he goes. But he finds another loophole. While he has to make his way to Karakorum, the Mongol capital, he decides that he doesn't have to do it quickly. So Batu and his entourage shuffle their way to the capital, like one mile per day. Hey, I'm on my way. It's your fault for not specifying how quickly you wanted me to show up. And Batu is doing the go slow, kind of hoping on counting on something happening. And then the thing that he was counting on ended up happening. Because Goyuk, the new Khan, was the son of Ogadai, the previous Khan. Ogadai, if you'll remember, was a truly heroic alcoholic who literally drank himself to death. And as you probably know, alcoholism is a trait that can run in the family. You see where I'm going with this? 
Ogodai had promised to only drink one cup of alcohol a day, and then had a massive cup made to get around that. Guyuk, he doesn't have anyone telling him how much alcohol to limit himself to. He gets elected Khan, and he goes on a Charlie Sheen-level bender that lasts for months. Apparently he gets up in the morning and he starts his day with wine, and he doesn't stop drinking until he passes out sometime that evening. He does take time to visit his massive harem a few times a day, and he does this every day without pause. Wake up, start drinking, fuck your brains out, continue drinking, pass out, rinse, repeat. If I sound like I'm preaching, rest assured this is exactly how I want to go out. Let's have no illusions there. I don't know exactly how much fortified mead it takes to kill an adult male, but Goyuk Khan does. So, he dead. Which is kind of fortunate for the Mongols, and kind of not, because there was about to be a civil war between Goyuk and Batu, which would have done great damage to the Empire, but that's been averted now. However, once again, we need a new Khan. So it's Kuril time. What happens next is so complex and convoluted, there are schemes within schemes within schemes, it would make Machiavelli's head spin, so I'm just going to essentially ignore it. Long, 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 long story short, a new Khan is elected. Monkey Khan. Monkey, this is Agent Honeydew. Help us. And he's elected because he's not really part of any of the factions who almost had a civil war. He's the kind of neutral candidate. And he's also seen as something of a reconciler because Monkey is the son of Tolui. I haven't mentioned Tolui in this story at all because I've had to cut him for time, which is a shame because Tolui was the youngest son of Genghis Khan and he's revered as sort of a saint for really interesting reasons that you're going to have to find out on your own. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. Well, I do, but you get the idea. Anyway, the new Khan is Monkey, and he's the grandson of Genghis Khan, and he's someone that everyone can agree to as Khan. I say that for brevity, if you can believe that at this point in the show, but I'm leaving out a significant amount of backstabbing and a lot of assassination attempts, one of which is like something straight out of Arabian Nights. That's like where one of these wagons full of tributes to the new Khan actually has assassins in it, but a local hunter happens to lose a camel, and while he's looking for the camel, he sees these assassins getting into this wagon, and he rides off at warp speed and warns the Khan, so the assassins have the tables turned, and it's all very prosaic. Uh, that story is told by the contemporary Persian historian Rashad al-Din, we've quoted him before, and he uses great, florid phrases like, they stepped aside from the highway of decency and reached forth with a hand of guile and violence. It kind of makes you wish we had a Rashad al-Din in modern discourse, doesn't it? Not everyone has to get on the bus for the bus to leave the station. But it is important the bus leaves the station, and we all agree on that. We all agree on that. Even when on occasion some might not want to get on, they know that we need to keep moving forward. But anyway, I love that story about the wagon full of assassins trying to kill the new Khan. You know, what's in the wagon? Oh, it's, uh, it's, full, of, uh, it's full of pizza. Oh, that's funny. We didn't order a pizza. Well, actually, it's full of assassins. Uh, we didn't order that either. 
So anyway, like I said, long story short, there's a failed coup and hundreds of people were executed, but eventually, Monkey stands out on top. And when I said that everyone agrees that Monkey is the best choice for the new Khan, I might have left out the part where he killed anyone who disagreed with him. And that is supported, and that's what we agreed to do today. But just like that, the Mongol Empire is back on track. There's a Khan in charge again. He's not a raging alcoholic, so that's a massive bonus. It's time to get this war machine back on the road. But it is important the bus leaves the station, and we all agree on that. Monkey decides that the Mongols haven't done any Mongoling in a while, and the rest of the world needs to remember what the Mongols are all about. So he launches a few conquests. His first one is to continue the fight against the Song Chinese, which I've outlined elsewhere at various points. Like I said earlier, this war takes about 50 years all up. But Monkey doesn't stop there though. He boldly goes where no Mongol has gone before, even the great Genghis Khan. He expands the empire significantly. To put things into perspective, under Monkey Khan, Mongolia's borders went from Ukraine to about half of India. The Mongols push into Vietnam and Korea, bringing portions of them into the Mongol Empire. What makes this an incredible little confluence of history is that conquering Korea and Vietnam brings those nations into contact with the other parts of the Mongol Empire, which is, as we know, the largest empire in history. That means that the technological developments from Korea were passed through the empire all the way into the Middle East and then onto Russia and filtered up the Silk Road, and from these places, these technologies and ideas filtered all the way back into Europe. And one of these technological developments was block printing. And about two centuries down the track, this block printing will find its way all the way into modern Germany, where a huckster and conman by the name of Jans Gensfleisch, who was known for conning pilgrims out of their money with phony inventions, he saw the applications of this block printing and he had an idea that would change the world, becoming, as a result, one of the most influential figures in history. Like I said, Jans Gensfleisch was a con man and a huckster. Jans Gensfleisch might have been wanted by the authorities and bounty hunters, but by changing his name to Johannes Gutenberg, he had a clean slate in more ways than one. And he was able to invent the printing press because the Mongols were so bloodthirsty and ambitious. History's a funny thing. But that's not where Monkey Khan makes his most indelible impression on history. Monkey decides to go back to the Middle East. And what happens there is perhaps the most significant event that we have on record. As in historically significant for everyone, ever. Because the world still hasn't recovered, and it may never fully recover from what's about to happen here. Ever since Genghis Khan conquered the Khwarizmian Empire, the Middle East has been in a sort of weird situation. It was never fully brought into the Mongol Empire. It's kind of self-governing. It still absolutely belongs to the Mongols, and every now and then there'll be a rebellion and the Mongols come in and kill a bunch of people and wave the flag, but it wasn't governed directly by the Mongols. It was kind of a suzerain. Monkey wants to change that. He wants the whole region run by Mongols for Mongols. 
and he sends someone in there to make it happen. Specifically, his own brother, Helegu. So once again, a Mongol army is raised, and once again, it marches down the Khorasan Highway, the one travelled by so many of history's great conquerors, Cyrus, Alexander, Genghis, and they march their way into the Middle East with conquest on their minds. The first people the Mongols conquer this time are known as the Nazari Ismais. These were a fearsome warrior people, known throughout the Middle East and Asia as the world's deadliest killers. They were famous for their ability to kill absolutely anyone they wanted killed. Regardless of how safe they thought themselves, if they were locked up in a tower or something, these people could get in there and kill them. In fact, their name is now synonymous with killing. If popular culture is to be believed, they could climb any building and drop silently from any height as long as they landed in a conveniently placed pile of hay and they had spring-loaded daggers hidden in their wrists. Maybe. Popular culture has run with these people even more than the Japanese ninjas, so it's kind of hard to know what was actually true. But if the name Nizari Ismaiz doesn't ring a bell, you probably know them better as the Hashashin, or anglicized, the Order of Assassins. The assassins were feared both for their ability to kill anyone, anywhere, and for the fact that they themselves were almost immune to retaliation. Their headquarters was a fortress known as Masyaf, which was a castle built on top of a cliff, and it was so incredibly hard to lay siege to and to attack that Middle Eastern nations thought it was impossible to capture. If you've played the original Assassin's Creed, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But, as we should all know by now, the Mongols give absolutely zero shits about any of this. There's no such thing as unconquerable. They don't have Assassin's Creed, they have Mongol Buggery Squad. And the Mongol Buggery Squad has guns. They take Masyaf without too much drama. So these merciless killers that everyone in the Middle East has been terrified of for centuries and Ubisoft has made a billion dollars making video games about, they're now part of the Mongol Buggery Squad. They've been absorbed into the Borg Collective. And the Borg Collective of Mongols keeps marching. And what comes next is where the world changes forever. And it involves... Baghdad. And Baghdad does whatever she please. Now, the city of Baghdad has been a big deal for about the same length of time as humans have figured out how to make houses. It's basically the same city as Babylon, which itself goes back to time immemorial. We're talking over 4,000 years old. It's not the oldest city in the world, but we're talking amounts of time here that it doesn't really matter. In fact, in about the year 600, a guy called Muhammad starts a new faith called Islam, and it takes off in a big, big way. And one of the places that it takes off is Baghdad. It's still quite popular today, but it isn't exactly the same faith as it was back then. Like I've said throughout this series, Baghdad at this time was like Agrabah from Aladdin. It was the Middle East Atlantis. It was a technological, scientific, philosophical, and spiritual jewel. Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Abbas. 
Anyone who was anyone went to Baghdad to make a name for themselves. If you were a big brain thinker in that day and age, Baghdad was the place for you. Show some respect, boy, you flat down on one and back then, the Muslims were the most progressive people in the world, and they were making miracles happen on the reg. And Baghdad was where it was all happening. The first ever periodic table of elements? Yeah, they came up with that. Copernicus was the first guy to come up with heliocentrism? No, he was using 600-year-old star charts that he got from Baghdad. They invented telescopes to view the stars. They invented the pinhole camera to look at eclipses instead of staring at it with their bare eyes like some recent U.S. presidents. Even the president saw it, but in a move that is not a complete surprise, he looked directly at the sun without any glasses. Perhaps the most impressive thing any president's ever done. All of these observations they were making about the stars required new kinds of mathematics to track them with, so they invented algebra and trigonometry and linear and quadratic equations. They came up with epidemiology and vaccinations. They had robots. Well, not actually robots, but they had incredibly complex automata. Machines that moved either by cranking them or powering them with water wheels, and they moved like actual people or animals, so... Robots. It, it was like Westworld. It was Middle East world. It was an incredibly advanced place, and that's because the prevailing view of Islam at the time was to promote scientific and philosophical advancement. To quote the Prophet Muhammad, Whoever follows a path in pursuit of knowledge... Allah will make a path to paradise easy for him. Islam was also a pretty chill religion at this point. Not everyone was on board, but for the most part, it was all about making the world a better place. There were some hardliners that believed that Islam should be a more fundamentalist religion, and that outside knowledge was the devil, and a whole bunch of things were abominations, and a lot of people should be put to death, but they were on the fringes. People didn't listen to those nutters. And all of it was centered in Baghdad. Baghdad had, among other things, the biggest library in the world at this point. But here's where we hit a snag. So Islam, as a religion, doesn't really have a central authority figure. It never has. There's no Pope of Islam. Which has been its biggest virtue and its most glaring flaw for the entirety of its existence. But in the time period that we're talking about, there was one voice who was louder than everyone else. During this time, Baghdad was run by a group of people known as the Abbasid Caliphate. They were a powerful Muslim nation, and their leader was the Caliph of Abbasid. And this guy had only been the Caliph for a short time, and as people who have just come to power are wont to do, he thought he needed to swing his dick around and let everyone know who was in charge. So he considered himself to be something like the Pope of Islam. The Abbasid Caliph decided that he knew what was hot and what was not when it came to being a good Muslim. And he laid down the law on how practicing Muslims should practice Islam. He said there was a right way and a wrong way, and a lot of you are doing it the wrong way. And anyone that's doing it the wrong way is an apostate, and it's going to be put to death, and it's going to burn in hell, yada 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 blah blah blah. Now, you need to remember that at this point in history, the Mongolian Empire is absolutely huge. It's most of the quote-unquote known world. And there are millions and millions of Muslims within this empire 
who all swear allegiance to the great Khan. And the Khan is cool with Islam. As long as you pay your taxes and pray for the health of the Khan, we cool. But what the Khan doesn't like is anyone telling anyone else how to go about that. The Mongols are all about the gods of their fathers. You remember that quote? You do religion your own way. And this Abbasid Caliph is telling everyone how Mongol citizens are supposed to practice their religion. Well, that's not going to sit well, is it? And in all fairness, this probably wasn't about freedom of religion. It was more likely that Monkey, being the new kid on the block himself, he didn't like someone else telling his citizens how to be his citizens. That was his job. But the result is the same. He decides to go to Baghdad and pay this caliph a visit and teach him the virtues of freedom of religion. So Monkey sends an envoy to this caliph dude. His name was Al-Mustasim Balah, by the way. And the Mongols sent him an envoy saying, Hey, back off, bow before the Khan, and we won't have to murder everyone. And remember now that this is about 30 years after Genghis Khan had first come through this region and killed about 15 million people and completely and utterly obliterated the Khwarizmian Empire. And the Mongols had been back periodically in the intervening time to sweep through and kill a whole bunch of people and show everyone the flag. The Mongols were the most significant thing to happen to this part of the world for the last thousand, more than a thousand years. And lest we forget, this has been a busy period. There's been at least five crusades and two new religions founded in that time. And with all of that knowledge, what do you think the Abbasid Caliph did? That's right, winner winner, chicken dinner, he told Monkey Khan to go fuck himself. And the Mongols send a letter back to him that is just amazing. In summary, it basically says, are you for fucking real? Do you know who you're talking to? You haven't seen how we killed the Charismians? You didn't hear how we went to Europe and kicked the shit out of everyone there? You haven't heard that we own China now? On top of all that, you somehow missed that we just killed the assassins and the guys you've been scared of for over 200 years? Are you seriously going to tell us to fuck ourselves? This is like the start of John Wick, only in this case, Theon Greyjoy knows who John Wick is and kills the dog anyway. Once killed three men in a bar. A pencil. I know, I've heard the story. With a fucking pencil? Who the fuck can do that? So the Mongols give this Caliph guy an ultimatum. He can either surrender immediately, turn over control of Baghdad, and then they'll only kill him. Or there's going to be a war and they'll kill everyone. And the Abbasid Caliph decides to go with option B. In doing this entire show, and this is easily the most heavily researched show I've ever done, I am still continually amazed at how many people know exactly what the Mongols are about, and they still decide to poke the bear. And these aren't one-sided accounts either. This isn't just the Mongol history trying to justify their wars. You get heaps of Persian and European records as well, and they all say how scared they are of the Mongols, but that their dipshit king or whatever decided he was going to go in with all this big dick energy and get everyone killed. So the Mongols send another letter to the Caliph saying, well, you asked for it, we're coming to kill you now. Alright, this is dedicated to Bart Simpson with a message, I am coming to kill you slowly and painfully. <laughs> 
And for some unknown reason, and it's still argued about today, the motives behind all of this, the caliph sends another letter to the Mongols in which he makes a whole bunch of claims that he can in no way back up. He essentially tells the Mongols to bring it on. There's no way that the Mongols can defeat the Abbasid armies, and even if they did, there's no way that they can break into Baghdad. And he basically calls Monkey Khan a child and tells him to run off and play with his toys. Now, at absolutely every point in these three shows, the Mongols have been outnumbered in every battle. Every time I've told you about a battle, the Mongols have been outnumbered, usually two to one, sometimes it's three or four to one, and they usually win easily. This time, it's the other way around. This time, the Mongols outnumber the Caliphate troops by at least double, some estimates have them at triple. The Abbasid Caliph seemed to have been of the opinion that he was way more important and way more popular than he actually was. He legitimately thought that all he had to do was call out for aid, and every loyal Muslim from all over the world would rush to his defense, and that the armies of the faithful would rally at his side and he would command an army of millions to push back the Mongols. What actually happened is that every other Muslim nation in the world wanted absolutely nothing to do with this. They just said, yeah dude, this is your funeral, we're out. Nobody showed up. The Mongols hit him from three sides simultaneously. It's an absolute massacre. There was one brief period where the Caliph's forces managed to get themselves in a semblance of a defensive formation, and they got themselves into something like an ancient Greek phalanx, which would have been very difficult for the Mongol cavalry to breach. So the Mongols decided not to bother with this, and they destroyed a nearby dam and said, hey, surf's up, try and defend against a tidal wave, which obviously a phalanx can't, and they all drowned. Then the Mongols laid siege to the city of Baghdad, and when the Mongols want a city, they take that city. It may take weeks, months, sometimes it takes years, but the Mongols always take the city. In this case, it took 12 days. At some point in this 12 days, it became abundantly clear what was going to happen. A group of about 3,000 of the city's leading figures, so nobles, diplomats, imams, etc., they came out under a banner of parley, and they tried to surrender to the Mongols. And the Mongols said to them, Sorry, buddy, that ship sailed. You should have surrendered before we got here. And those 3,000 people were executed on the spot. And at this point, the caliph himself realized the gravity of the situation, and he himself rode out on his own under a white flag, and he surrendered to the Mongols personally, and he said to Helugu, who was commanding this army, Look, I surrender. Do whatever you want to me, but please, spare the people of Baghdad. And Helugu said to him, You know what? We'd rather do both. There are two stories about what happened to the Abbasid Caliph at this point. One was that he was locked in a tower full of treasure, all of his gold and jewels and all of his precious stuff, but no food or water, with the obvious moral implications that it doesn't matter how rich you are in treasure if you die of thirst, which all seems like too much of a fairy tale, because the Mongols would much rather have had that treasure. Story B is far more likely. 
they decided to make the Abbasid Caliph into a welcome mat. The Caliph was wrapped up in a big Persian rug and placed on the ground at the main gate of Baghdad. And then 150,000 Mongol horsemen rode over him as they entered the city. Welcome to the rug, motherfucker. As you might guess, this is not conducive to your good health. What happens next is known to history as the Sack of Baghdad. Capital letters everywhere on that one. Numbers are disputed, but somewhere between 80 to 200,000 people were murdered on the spot. The story goes that the two rivers between which Baghdad sits, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they ran red with blood for three whole days as the people of the city were beheaded. And then it was said that those two rivers ran black for an entire week. Black with the ink from the millions of scrolls, parchments, and books that the Mongols dumped into the rivers. What was perhaps the greatest cultural center of the world, with all of its amazing technological advances and philosophical treatises, all of this was destroyed over the course of less than a fortnight by the Mongol horde. It's fair to say that the development of the human civilization as a whole was set back centuries, as all of this knowledge was if not lost, then at least made much, much more difficult to find and reclaim. You could make a legitimate argument that mankind might currently have a thriving colony on Mars were it not for this one event. Apparently the stench from the slaughter was so bad that the Mongols had to move their entire camp upwind to escape the smell. To reiterate, the Mongols thought the smell was too bad. Baghdad itself would never be the same. Since the Mongols had destroyed the dams to flood the Abbasid army, the entire irrigation system was destroyed. The complex network of rivers and canals and aqueducts, all of this fertile farmland that defined the region known as the Fertile Crescent, that had existed since humans first stepped out of caves, that was all destroyed. There might have been a chance for the land to recover if the canals could have been repaired and returned to service, but there was nobody left alive to do it. The water table under Mesopotamia was permanently altered, and the soil, the rich farmland from the cradle of civilization, became silted. The ground became so salty due to salination that nothing would ever grow there again. This region wasn't always desert, it happened because of the Mongols. This happened 800 years ago, and Iraq still hasn't recovered. And the sack of Baghdad changed Islam forever as well. Most of its enlightened figures, its scientists and its philosophers, they were murdered when the city was destroyed. Islam used to be a religion that was at the forefront of progressive scientific advancement, all of its greatest thinkers were based in Baghdad, while all of the fringe lunatics were, well, on the fringes. And suddenly, because everyone else was dead, they were now the main voices. The religion as a whole took a huge step towards conservative fundamentalist evangelism, and it has never been the same either. Islam has never been through a reformation. 
and that can largely be blamed on the fact that the equivalents of its Confucius's or its Martin Luther's or what have you were all murdered in a two-week period. The sack of Baghdad may be the most damaging man-made single event in the history of our species, and it pretty much came about because one person decided to be a dick to a group of people he knew he shouldn't be a dick to. The Renaissance, the great period of scientific and cultural enlightenment, would start in Europe about a hundred years after the Mongols do their thing, and it would take about a hundred more years to really get going. And yet, Europe was a very distant third behind the Middle East, who was a distant second behind China in terms of scientific, artistic, and cultural development. The Mongols devastated two of those civilizations and came a bee's dick away from pulling off the trifecta. And you have to wonder just how different the world would have looked today if the Mongols had never existed. If the son of a local tribal chief in the middle of nowhere on the Asian steppe hadn't ever been born. There's a lot of what-ifs in history, but this is probably the biggest you'll ever get. When the news of the sack of Baghdad hit the Christian nations, there was dancing in the streets. When the people of the Lord of Peace as Pope Innocent IV would have put it, heard that the greatest of the Muslim cities was destroyed and hundreds of thousands of its citizens were murdered, they were utterly jubilant. They thanked their God for bestowing such a bounty. And we should never, ever forget that. The Christians still saw the Mongols as some sort of Nestorian Christian army, despite all evidence to the contrary. Such evidence including letters from the Khan saying that they were, quite emphatically, not Christian. The Mongols did not give a single shit. As they conquered their way through the Middle East, they slaughtered Muslim and Christian alike. It's just that since the area was mostly Muslim, the Christians didn't see as much combat and thus got to keep living with their delusions. There was a civil war in Syria at the time. There still is, actually. And it was apparent during that conflict that the Mongols didn't care which Sky Fairy you believed in. They were going to send you to meet him all the same, because both sides of this Syrian civil war had to fight the Mongols, and instead of banding together, each tried to get the Mongols to kill the other side, and they all ended up getting slaughtered in history side and repeated itself once again. The Mongols kept on the march, and they made it all the way to Egypt. And this is where they hit a snag. It's the same snag as every other time the Mongols are about to completely wipe out an entire civilization. Helugu receives word that Monkey, the great Khan, has died. It's Kuril Thai time. Everyone pack up your shit. We're heading back to Mongolia. Half of the Mongol army was in the Middle East doing all of this, and the other half was in China in that ongoing conflict, and that's where Monkey Khan was leading from the front. Monkey sent his brother Helugu to deal with the Middle East, but China was in for the personal touch, so he was there leading things personally, alongside some other luminaries of Mongol leadership, including a guy called Kublai. And this war with the Song Chinese was going well, but not as well as it could have been. It was taking a while. The Mongols were winning, but the Song were making them work for it. The Song were actually ready for the Mongols, or so they thought. Before the war, going back about a decade, 
They were one of the few people who had encountered refugees fleeing from the Mongols and then actually listened to what these refugees had to say. Namely, holy shit, you're all going to die, you better get some defenses up and running. And the song did. They found a series of highly defensible locations along the Yangtze River and built a bunch of forts there. And these forts were known as the Pillars of Sejuan. And then Monkey Khans came along and said, <laughs> lol, forts, knock them down, boys. And they did. But there was one fortress in particular that was on a central trade route that was proving particularly troublesome. And that's the city of Dayu Cheng, which was defended by something known as the Fishing Fortress. Remember, the conquest of Song China was taking a very long time, and Monkey was besieging this city for ages for the entirety of every other conflict in the rest of the world that I've been talking about until this point, he's been besieging this city. And this fishing fortress is being rather stubborn. It's one of the most amazing defensive fortresses I've ever seen. It's one of the most impregnable places in the history of warfare. It's a fort on top of a very tall, very steep hill, and the hill itself overlooks some important docks, which control supplies in and out of Song, China. Everyone wants this fort, it's important but it's incredibly hard to take. The fort had steep walls, which were about 20 feet high, which are themselves built on top of cliffs, so you can't just walk up to them and say hi. This thing is straight out of Lord of the Rings. It looks like Chinese Minas Tirith. It's this castle on top of a cliff, and it's got gardens and fisheries and three layers of walls. It was one of the greatest defenses in the world. It's basically a self-sufficient city on top of a mountain. It's even got trebuchets, like Minas Tirith did, to rain death on people who tried to take the fortress. It has cannons and rocket launchers, because Tolkien didn't think big enough. And the main defensive feature of the fishing fortress was this, it was kind of like a drawbridge, but if the drawbridge was the entire road up to the fort, it was a draw hill, essentially. So there's this massive cliff, with massive cliff walls, completely sheer, and no road leading to the gates of the fort. So they built little holes in the wall along the cliff, and in each one of these little holes they jam a big wooden plank. And you put all these planks in, and suddenly you've got a path from the docks all the way up to the gates of the fort. And when the Chinese want to shut up shop, they just remove all of these planks one by one, taking away the only path to the fort. So when the Chinese wanted to turtle up, they literally took away all the ground surrounding this fortress, which made it quite hard to attack because it was sitting on top of a fucking mountain. And you can begin to see why this is such a central point in this story, this one fort, this fishing fortress. And Monkey Khan was quite vexed by the fishing fortress. And if you want to know why it's called the fishing fortress, then you'll have to sign up and become a patron. Anyway, Monkey is besieging this thing for ages, months and months, years, and he can't take this damn city. It's the last line of defense between him and the total conquest of China, and he just can't crack it. He tries to starve them out of the fortress, but the fortress actually has fisheries in it. They grow their own fish, and in one famous instance, the commander of this fortress orders his troops to load fish into the trebuchets on the walls and shoot fish at the Mongols to show them just how much food they had and that this siege isn't going to starve them out. So this is quite vexing for Monkey Khan. He wants this city, and he can't crack it. So one day, he has his engineers build a massive tower just outside the city. 
It was a huge ladder that was about 30 meters high so that someone can climb this ladder and take a look from a bird's eye perspective and see if there was some weakness they could exploit or something. And Monkey says to one of his troops, climb this rickety tower and tell me what's going down. And this dude says, well, it doesn't look very safe. And Monkey says, yeah, you're right. Tell you what, we'll put you in a catapult and shoot you at the city and you can tell us what's happening as you're flying over it. And this guy says, you know what? The tower will be fine. And he starts climbing this huge rickety tower to take a look. And as this guy starts climbing this massive tower, he's spotted by the defenders on the walls of the fishing fortress. And the defenders, they don't want any Mongol looky-loos seeing what's going on. And one of them sitting next to a cannon, and he says, I reckon I can nail this bloke. 20 bucks says I can nail the guy climbing the tower with this cannon. And he fires the cannon, and he completely misses the guy climbing the ladder. But what happens is that the cannonball misses the tower. But as luck would have it, it just happens to arc exactly to where Monkey Khan was standing on the ground waiting to hear from the guy at the top. So by a complete fluke, the cannon hits Monkey Khan, he explodes, and now we need a new Kurultai to determine who the next Khan's going to be. So when Monkey died, there wasn't a plan of succession in place. Monkey really wasn't planning to explode that day, kind of took everyone by surprise. Things are about to get really bitter. History records this period of history as the Tuluid Civil War, and I am going to spend barely any time on it. Because it isn't really engaging, insofar as a civil war in the mightiest empire in history can be considered trite. So I can either largely skip it, or I can do about five hours of backstory to make it all make sense, and none of it's really worth it, so I'll just give you the bullet points. Tuluid is the demonym for the children of Tului, who was one of Genghis Khan's sons, and oh yeah, he's Kublai Khan's dad. I'm doing Tului a massive disservice here because I don't have time to get into his story. Basically, he's like Mongol Jesus. Which I know is a phrase that has a lot of you wondering why I'm not covering Mongol Jesus. But trust me, the payoff isn't worth the journey. Feel free to search it on your own. Tului Khan, that's T-O-L-U-I. Run that through your search engine. I have to cut Mongol Jesus for time. Sorry. I also probably shouldn't mention that this story has wizards in it either. I'll probably do that one up as a Patreon exclusive or something. Hint, hint. Sorry, long civil war short. Monkey Khan dies while warring in China. Kublai Khan is there. He's Monkey Khan's right-hand man. And he's Genghis Khan's grandson, and everyone thinks Kublai Khan is a cool dude, so he sort of just declares himself the Khan. He says, Look, I know we should have a Kurultai. Everyone loves a Kurultai. Nobody loves a Kurultai more than me, but here's the thing. This is the third time now that this has happened, and all of our amazing conquests of the world have halted because we've had to go home for a Kurultai, and I love the Kurultai. Remember, I absolutely love the Kurultai, but here's something. Just imaginate with me. What if we had the Kurultai right here in China instead of everyone going back to Mongolia and stopping the campaign we've spent half a century fighting? And everyone flipped their shit because you do not fuck with the Kurultai. It has to be in Mongolia. That's how you know it's a real Kurultai. It has to come from the Kurultai region of the Mongol steppe. Otherwise, it's just sparkling election. But Kublai 
actually ends up getting his way, and people see the sense of getting it over and done with in China, so they have the Kurultai then and there, and Kublai Khan gets elected as the next Khan. He's now Kublai Khan. He has the matrix of leadership. He's in charge. You got the touch. Meanwhile, Kublai's younger brother, Arik, or Arik Boke, is the governor of the Mongol capital city of Karakoram. And he fancies being the Khan himself. So he uses the pretext that Kublai Khan has fucked with the Kurultai as a pretense for declaring himself the legitimate Khan by having a Kurultai of his own in the Kurultai region of Kurultai Town. I'm making some of these words up. So now there are two Khans. And I'd love to say that this is an interesting story, but it just isn't. Kublai Khan sighs, gathers his army, marches back to Mongolia, kicks the ever-loving shit out of Arik Boke's army, Arik himself is imprisoned, and while they're debating what to do with him, he has a bad accident and falls on some daggers, and all of this takes a couple of years, but eventually Kublai Khan wins, and he becomes the Great Khan, but the empire was never going to be the same again, the massive entity that it was under Genghis Khan. There's just too much friction in it now. But the upshot of it is, that Kublai is now Kublai Khan. Like in Xanadu did Kublai Khan, that guy. He's now the ruler of the Mongols. Mostly. Kublai Khan is like something straight out of a fairy tale. He is the quintessential exotic oriental king from a magical far-off realm. How do I even describe Kublai Khan? Well, I could use the title of a French engraving from the 18th century, uh, it's hanging in the Louvre, I believe. It's a realist work, so don't go looking for meaning here, but the title of this engraving is The Emperor Kublai Khan in a Tower Carried by Four Elephants on the Day of Battle. Yeah. The Mongols were good with horses, and then they became good with siege engines. Now imagine Kublai Khan rocking up to battle in a castle carried by four elephants, shooting cannons and rockets everywhere like Dr. Robotnik. There was a lot more to him than that, but you have to be awesome when a carving of you riding four war elephants decked out with cannons and rocket launchers like something from Dino Riders is your starting off point. Kublai Khan's father was Tului, Mongol Jesus, and his mother was a righteous Wonder Woman by the name of Sorgatani. Sorgatani is quite possibly one of the most remarkable women in history. She actually operated as a regent for a bit between Khans, and she is one of the most intelligent and ruthless people to have ever lived. So much so that she was able to actually command the obedience and respect of the Mongols, which is no mean feat. She could make a legitimate claim to be the most powerful woman who has ever lived. And Sorgatani was no fool. She saw the long game. So she raised her sons, including Kublai and Monkey, to be rulers. They were born to be emperors. So in addition to the usual Mongol stuff like learning how to ride and shoot and shoot while riding, little Kublai was learning things like reading, which was very far from standard. He was literate from a young age. This is not normal. Sorgatani also taught him things like statecraft and diplomacy, i.e. that you can do things other than horribly murder everyone. You can always come back and murder them later, but you don't have to do that first. And this is a policy that he'll embrace a few times in his life, both the diplomatic side and the coming back and murdering everyone else side. And get this, Sorgatani was actually a Nestorian Christian. So from birth, 
Kublai was raised in a multi-religious household. He had the Mongol tradition of shamanism, he had his mother harping on with whatever crazy bullshit Nestorianism is, and he was also being educated by Confucian and Muslim scholars, so he was a man of the world. He was easily the most learned of the Mongols, and one of the most preeminent thinkers of his day. Learned, son. It's pronounced learned. And interestingly enough, Kublai Khan himself was a Buddhist. Yes, the ruler of the most savage and ruthless force in the history of mankind is now a Buddhist. This is a big deal because Buddhism is, by and large, a peaceful religion. And the Mongols were, by and large, the most murderous people in the history of stabbing. And Buddhism was all about not stabbing. It's a religion that is committed to the karmic cycle of the cosmos, unlike the other major religions of the time like Islam and Christianity, which say they're against murder, but when you actually take a quick pick at their dogma, it turns out that they're actually super into murder. Their holy books are basically instruction manuals for which people need to be wiped out in the best way of doing that. Kublai Khan wasn't about that. He was Genghis Khan's grandson. He knew how to wipe out an ethnicity, thank you very much. You don't need to tell him how to do that. You don't give Tiger Woods tips on his swing. So he gravitated towards the more humanist religions, and this had a sort of a flow-on effect. He actually cared about the well-being of his citizens. And, as it turns out, when your citizens aren't being constantly threatened with starvation and murder, they're a lot more productive. Which is a lesson that Jeff Bezos could probably brush up on. So Kublai was excellent at governing because people liked the idea of not being murdered every day, and they wanted to join his gang. And Kublai was bringing this attitude for a while before he was Khan. He didn't just suddenly become leader of the Mongols. He'd been in the mix for a long time before that. When Monkey became Khan, he gave northern China to his brother, Kublai. Like, as a present. Here's northern China. And Kublai says, Gee, thanks, Prish. And he sets about governing northern China. And he gets to the capital city, and he looks around, and he doesn't like the feng shui of this major city, so he has his men knock it down and start over. You probably think I'm making a joke there, or exaggerating for comic effect. I'm not. Kublai was very big on feng shui, and apparently this city had bad angles, the energy was all off, so he had it torn down and built again. A city of 200,000 people, in a time when most cities in the world didn't have 200,000 people, was knocked down and rebuilt with better aesthetics. And apparently the aesthetics were truly amazing. The city was built on a square plan, everything was symmetrical, it had worked walls painted with frescoes, it had hanging gardens, regular gardens, hunting grounds, golden temples... It was by all accounts, and we have some accounts, by all accounts it was a wonder of the world. And Kubler called this city Xanadu. Here in Xanadu last week, Xanadu's landlord was laid to rest. A potent figure of our century, America's Kubler Khan, Charles Foster Kane. You know, stately pleasure domes, caverns, numberless demands, sunless seas, the whole shebang. So Kublai Khan becomes the Khan of the Mongols in December of 1271, and he takes the throne and he says, Alright boys, it's time we brought the Mongols into the 13th century. He's going to modernize this army of barbarian killers. Civilize them. 
He's not going to make them any less a numberless band of horrible murderers, but he's going to make them more efficient. There's going to be some changes in the Empire. They're going to be the light on the hill for the rest of human civilization. First off, there was the issue of religion. The world was still feuding over which guilt wizard was the correct one, and Kublai Khan had had enough of that distraction. There can be only one god. It's Highlander time. Time to find out which god is the correct one so that everyone can stop fighting over that stupid nonsense and start fighting for the Mongols against the rest of the world. Kublai needed to know which religion was the best, so he gathered together religious figures from all over the world and lodged them at Xanadu, and he had them have something like a religious royal rumble where everyone had to present their best argument for why their Sky Fairy was the best. And eventually Kubler decided that Buddhism was the way to go, and that became the official state religion. Kublai Khan is one of the greatest administrators of all time. That's probably his biggest claim to fame. If Genghis Khan's quote that empires are won on horseback but not ruled on horseback is true, which it probably is, then Genghis Khan is the greatest conqueror of all time, and his grandson, Kublai, is quite possibly the greatest ruler of all time. Top five, certainly. He was all about innovation. He wasn't a conservative. He was all about philosophy and science and advancing the human race. For instance, he saw the need for a reliable postal service, so he set one up to run messages across his empire, which, lest we forget, is the biggest empire ever. We're not counting the British one because most of that was ocean. So Kublai Khan basically invented the postal service. And he didn't like this idea of metal coinage. There was a lot not to like about metal coins. They're heavy, they're fiddly, you can counterfeit them or shave a bit off here or there. It was a good idea at the time, which was when the Lydians invented it in 600 BC, but it was an outdated concept. What about, and just what if, what if you had an official note that said you had money? So you had a letter from the Khan, with the Khan's seal, saying that this letter was worth 10 gold coins. Wouldn't that make things easier? Yeah, Kublai Khan invented paper money. He also gave copious grants to scientists and artists who were previously derided under the old Song Chinese rule as useless mouths. Kublai turned society upside down and said that culture was very important and that the people who made the culture happen were to be paid accordingly. And thus, the Yuan dynasty of China is still regarded as one of the most prosperous of all time. You'd think that world leaders would take note every time this happens, but alas, no. They just don't invest in the arts. Australia has just recently merged their Ministry for the Arts with the Ministry of Transportation, for instance. Sometimes history repeats, often it doesn't. Not a race. It's not a competition. On the other hand, there's also the fact that Kublai Khan was an obese, absolute unit who drank heroic amounts of liquor, ate fried chicken like he owned KFC, and he spent a few hours a day in the harem, which his detractors used to detract. But, I mean, haters gonna hate. This guy is the grandson of Genghis Khan, debauched gluttony and lust are in his DNA, and Genghis Khan's DNA is in most people's DNA, so who are we to judge? Dude was living his best life. Kublai Khan had some major fashion shops too. He was like Kublai Kanye. He kept it Yeezy. Kublai wore a set of robes made of gold. Not embroidered with gold or golden in color. He wore robes that were essentially chainmail made out of gold. It must have been pretty fucking heavy, but looking good is never easy, and he looked the best. 
And he was also amazingly, cosmically unlucky in war. Like, as in all of the gods who didn't get picked in his religious royal rumble decided to gang up on him and dole out the worst luck in the history of mankind. He still managed to push the Mongol borders all the way to India. He presided over the largest contiguous empire in the history of the planet still to this day, and he was, by all accounts, a competent, if not brilliant, military leader. He was Genghis Khan's grandson, after all. But the Mongols would never again be the absolute juggernaut that they were in years past. And some of this has to do with the fact that at this point in the story, there are no more dogs of war, they've all died out. So there's no more Jebes or Subadais or Genghis Khans. But a great deal of it is that the Mongol horde suffers from misfortune after misfortune to the point where it starts to look cosmically freaky. For instance, there's this. You all know what a kamikaze is, right? When I say kamikaze, what springs to mind is the Japanese pilots in World War II who loaded up their planes with all the fuel and bombs they could muster and then suicidally crashed into allied ships like giant human-guided bombs. What gets lost is that it wasn't always planes that these guys used. They had actual human bombs that they dropped out of aircraft like a guy strapped with explosives and no parachutes. They had human torpedoes. They'd just straight up run at you with grenades in each hand. All of these desperate, crazy acts came under the banner of a kamikaze, and it's one of the most memorable things about the most memorable conflict in human history. And it should be said that the vast majority of these suicide bombers were Buddhist, just for the sake of the record. It isn't all meditation and zen. But what does kamikaze, like the word kamikaze, actually mean? Well, we owe that to the Mongols. Kamikaze is Japanese for divine wind. But that doesn't quite do it justice. There's a lot more nuance to the term. Specifically, a kamikaze is a storm or tempest which is sent directly by the gods to defend the islands of Japan against foreign invaders. It's like a, a god-powered national defense system. Kamikaze doesn't just mean ride the bomb, it's loaded with spiritual, religious, and historical significance. Like if the cross that Jesus was nailed to was a crucifix, but it was also a crossbow that shot Jesus' at people who were trying to invade Jerusalem. It's a divine purging of those that would threaten the Japanese way of life. That's a kamikaze. And the root of this legend is with the Mongols. In the year 1274, Kublai Khan is in the middle of conquering Spree, like all good Khans. And he decides that he's going to go where no Mongol has gone before. The Mongols at this point have conquered as far as Ukraine, they own the Middle East, they've unified China, they're into Indochina, where else is there? So Kublai Khan decides that he's going to go the full Megillah and he'll invade the islands of Japan. But the problem is that Japan, as you'll note, is not part of the mainland. It's a series of islands. Islands have this crazy geographical feature where you can't just ride a horse over there, which is how the Mongols usually approach their problems. So the Mongols needed a navy. No problem, we just conquered China. We'll get them to build us a navy. The Chinese have been doing navies for thousands of years at this point. They can build us some ships, which they do. And for the record, Chinese naval technology was so far ahead of the Europeans they discovered the Pacific Islands back in the BC times. They were good at it. So the Mongols get about 400 Chinese ships, and they load them up with unstoppable Mongol warriors, and they point this fleet 
at Japan. It's only a short hop from China to Japan. This is going to be another chapter in the glorious Mongol conquest of the universe. And as these hundreds and hundreds of Mongol ships, each bearing hundreds of elite Mongol warriors, begins to appear on the Japanese horizon, something weird happens. A storm blows up out of nowhere. And this isn't just any storm either. This is the mother of all storms. This is a typhoon so big that there is no Japanese record of anything of this magnitude. The closest thing they have is myth and legend going back to the Great Flood. That's how big this storm is. It's a once in a thousand year, once in a ten thousand year storm. And it wipes out the Mongol invasion fleet. Sorry boys, no invasion today. Everyone is just drowned in the Sea of Japan. Kublai Khan hears this and he goes, Alright, well that's quite a setback. Quite unfortunate, but these things happen, right? Who could have predicted that the largest storm in history would blow up out of nowhere right as we were about to invade? Force majeure and all that. How about we get another fleet together and we have another crack at this? And that's what the Mongols do. They spend about four years putting together another fleet and they fill it with another army and it's anchors away, time for Operation Samurai Showdown 2 Electric Boogaloo. And these Mongol ships are traveling through the Sea of Japan again, and you are not going to believe what happens. Another typhoon blows up. And not just any typhoon either, this one is even bigger than the last storm that wrecked the last Mongol invasion. So this is the second once-in-a-thousand-year storm that has happened in the last four years, and it's wiped out the second army that has been sent at Japan. And at this point, Kublai Khan cuts his losses, and he says that anime and pachinko aren't worth it, let's leave Japan to the Japanese. And as you can guess, these two storms became a huge deal in Japanese history and folklore. Just as they're about to be invaded by the most badass army in the history of man, a storm appeared as if sent by the gods and wiped them out. Twice. As if that's not going to become part of your national religious psyche. And so they called the storm the Divine Wind, the Kamikaze, the holy force that kept the foreign devils out of holy Nippon. So Kublai Khan nixed the whole Japanese idea and he pointed himself in other directions. He pushed into Vietnam, Korea, Burma, and even Java. And every time he actually managed to win, but the conditions in these hot and humid countries didn't agree with the steppe people that the Mongols were, or even the Chinese, and so each of these invasions, while the Mongols won, they were so riddled with diseases like yellow fever and malaria that they were basically forced to call it a draw and go home. The Mongols had a bit of a problem with geography. It was really the only thing that was able to stop them, or at least slow them down. They were pure death anywhere out in the open, and they'd gotten pretty good at siege warfare over the years. So if you're in a city or anywhere with roads or there are meadows, pastures or grassland anywhere, you're straight up dead. And this death on horseback had delivered the Mongols the largest contiguous empire in human history. And here's a point that's worth making. The Mongol empire expanded so much, it was so big, that their home ground advantage wasn't an advantage anymore. They had pushed their borders so far that they weren't fighting on their geographically preferred ground anymore. They were doing alright in the Middle East, because desert wasn't a big deal to them. The Mongol steppe is a lot like desert, and they rode around the Gobi Desert like it was nothing. 
Eastern Europe was all pastures and meadows, as was northern China, but then they pushed into places where they weren't able to operate as well. They didn't push into Europe, but the German forests would have given them a lot of trouble. And as they pushed further south into China, they ran into the same problems. Take a look at footage of China, specifically around Beijing. What does it look like? It looks like a bunch of woods on top of mountains. That's not good for a cavalry army. It didn't stop the Mongols, but it wasn't an instant win anymore. They had to work for it. And as they pushed even further south, the woods became forests, and eventually, when they got into the very south of China, into places like Korea and Vietnam, it was full-on jungle. And nobody fights well in a jungle, not even the people born there. You mostly have to fight the jungle. It's hot, it's humid, it's not a dry heat. So this is not what the Mongols are used to. They like things to be chill. So while Genghis Khan might have claimed that God personally declared to him that the whole world was the domain of the Mongols, God certainly set a difficulty curb at certain points closer to the equator. But within their preferred zone, goddamn, they were unstoppable. Eventually, the Mongols, under Kublai Khan, captured the rest of Song, China. Interestingly, they never actually captured the fishing fortress, the place where Monkey Khan died. They just sort of left it there and conquered everything else around it. Fine, we don't need it. And then when the people in the fishing fortress realized that there wasn't a country to protect anymore, the fortress finally surrendered. A quarter of a century after, Monkey thought he could take it in a week. And when they finally did surrender, Kublai Khan just sort of said, oh, Well played, we respect your moxie. Hey everybody, nobody kill everyone from this fortress, okay? They're all right. Good bunch of chums, these fellows. Which proves that Kublai was way more chill than your average Mongol. In the first decade of his rule, Kublai Khan conquered all of China. Then he conquered the rebel Mongols, and in doing so, he became the most powerful man on earth. He's the first person in over 300 years to rule a unified China, and his borders stretched pretty much over a quarter of the planet. All of China, parts of Korea and Indochina, all the way to the Black Sea, the Mediterranean, into part of Europe. It's a truly massive empire. It's never been equaled. No England. Cool your tits. We've been over this. Ocean doesn't count. Now here's as good a place to any to address a glaring point. So a few times in this series, I've mentioned Beijing, or Chengdu as it was known. I mentioned in the first show that it was wiped out by the Mongols under Genghis Khan, razed to the ground so that nothing remained. And then at various points after this, during these shows, it's there, and then it's not, and then it's there again. What the hell's going on with Beijing? Was it still around, or was it destroyed? Well, yes. Both. It was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt. And it was rebuilt by Kublai Khan in one of the most alpha moves in the history of Chad's. Beijing was destroyed by Genghis Khan. But Kublai Khan wanted to show everyone how awesome he was, so he had Beijing rebuilt. And he had it rebuilt not the way it was, but the way he wanted it to be. He had it rebuilt according to plans drawn up by Kublai Khan. I think, out of all of the stuff that the Mongols did, this has to be the most baller move of all of them. There's capturing a city, there's sacking a city, then there's sacking the city and burning it to the ground, then there's burning the rubble to the ground just in case, but then to get the people you just conquered to rebuild their capital city in a different style? That's another level of conquest right there. 
Build it again, I say. I decreed a stately pleasure dome. Stately. You think English poets 400 years from now are going to want to write about this shit? Knock it down and start over again. Now, we're at the back end of a series of stories that began so many hours ago, so I won't be branching into any new narratives, which is a bit of a relief, possibly for you, but definitely for me. These things are tiring to put out, let me tell you. But during the reign of Kublai Khan, he gets a rather notable visitor to the court of Xanadu. This visitor is a young man from Venice, and he and Kublai strike up the most unlikely friendship. This Venetian ends up staying in Mongolia for over 20 years, and he has 20 years of adventures in this exotic land of mystery and intrigue, tale after tale, each more unbelievable than the last. And when he finally leaves and returns to Europe, he happens to find himself on the wrong side of a local conflict and lands himself in a Genovese prison, where he regales his cellmate with the endless tales of unbelievable adventures in the court of this esoteric king of the Tartars. The cellmate, one Rusticello de Pisa, knew a bestseller when he heard one, and he began to write down all of the amazing stories that his fellow prisoner would tell day and night. And that's how we got one of the most popular books of all time, The Travels of Marco Polo. Marco Polo famously said on his deathbed that he only told half of what he saw, because if he told the other half of the story, no one would have believed him. And he's kind of right. Because even with the half of the tale that he did tell, there's a significant chance that the half he did tell was entirely bullshit. We can't ascertain for certain that he ever even went to China at all. And it's not like he wrote the whole thing while locked up in a Genovese prison with nothing else to do. Wait, hang on. It's probable that Marco Polo made it to Constantinople, and there he collected a bunch of other people's tales and then passed them off as his own and made his own book out of it. After all, Marco Polo's nickname in Venice was Il Milioni, or The Braggart. But, true or not, we owe a lot of what we know about the great Kublai Khan to the ravings of this Venetian prisoner of war, and his unabashed man-crush on Kublai Khan, and his tales that may or may not be true. I couldn't leave Marco Polo out of this story, not when his narrative thread crosses over so significantly, but in a move that will no doubt stab his spectre in the heart, that's as much time as I'll give to him. This is, after all, a story of the Mongol Khans, and not the Polos. And so we return to Kublai Khan, grandson of the mighty Genghis Khan, emperor of the largest swathe of territory ever to owe fealty to a single man, innovator, philosopher, warrior, poet, and now an old man who had, as they say, done it all. Later in his life, his favorite wife died, one of the few he actually loved, and then shortly after that, his oldest son also died. Kublai was left heartbroken, and he spent the twilight years of his life, he was in his late 60s at this point, he decided that he was going to spend all day, every day, just drinking himself stupid, eating as much greasy food as possible, and fucking whenever he could get the blood pumping. Historians call this a bad thing 
like he was a broken, obese, despondent man absorbed by his own grief and indolence. Kublai Khan's descent into madness and despair is my bucket list, and if I could travel back in time and trade places with him, I gladly would. I understand him, you might say. Historians like to paint him as this broken man who lost himself to gluttony in his sorrow, but he just did it better than anyone else. I've buried myself in a bottle of wine, a bucket of chicken, and a wank after the Rabbitohs lose, let alone family. Kublai Khan just dreamed bigger than everyone else. On February 18th, 1294, Kublai Khan died of a broken heart. It was probably cholesterol, but the poetic broken heart is still technically correct. In Mongol tradition, we don't know where he's buried. He was succeeded by his grandson, Timur, who became Timur Khan, and ruled the still vast Mongol Empire as his father, great-uncles, and great-grandfather did. But Timur was a second-generation Chinese. He may have been the great-grandson of Temujin, Genghis Khan, but Timur Khan wasn't Mongolian. He was, by all accounts, a more than competent ruler, but he wasn't a Mongol ruler. He was Yuan Chinese. With the death of Kublai Khan came the death of the last ruler to have ridden the steppe, the last true Mongol Khan. The Yuan dynasty would last another century, but it would be Mongol in name only. It was thoroughly ethnically Chinese. And we could look at it as China playing the long game here. Where before they were three of the strongest empires in the world, each fighting for supremacy, only to be wiped out by the unstoppable force of the Mongol horde, utterly crushed by four people named Khan, in their defeat, they absorbed the Mongols. And the Yuan Chinese Empire, founded by Kublai Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan, unified at last after more than three centuries, China was suddenly the largest empire in the world. Kind of like it is right now. And it all happened because they lost. The ramifications of the roughly hundred years that the Mongols were out doing their thing from the time when Genghis Khan united the disparate tribes of the Mongol steppe to when Kublai Khan entertained Marco Polo, the ramifications, the butterfly effect is astounding. So much of the modern world we know today is as a direct result of this relatively small chunk of history that is packed so full of cause and effect. Like I said way back at the start of this series, quoting Vladimir Lenin, There are decades where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen. Well, this was a century where a millennium happened. Now, to close this lengthy chapter of HGT, I'll leave you with one last anecdote. Because Damo's patented Mobius story structure dictates that you must end a show where you started it, but with additional context that assures the audience they're richer for the journey. Seriously, if you haven't read my book, you should check it out. The Mongols are indirectly responsible for the term that writers use to describe the sensation of having a great idea, but then losing it before you can write it down. Everyone's felt this. You have this great idea, the idea that's going to make you rich and famous and cause your name to echo through eternity, but damn it, you just don't have a pen on you. 
and by the time you find a pen and a cocktail napkin to write on, the idea is lost forever and you're doomed to obscurity for all time. We've all felt it. And there's a term that dates back a couple of hundred years to describe this feeling. It's called the person from Porlock. And it is, indirectly, the fault of the Mongols. Kublai Khan is the inspiration for one of the greatest poems in the history of literature, the one that I read at the top of the show. It's the poem by the name of Kublai Khan, by the famed word-make-good guy Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Coleridge also wrote Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and he also coined the term suspension of disbelief, so he was prolific, and I cover him in my book, which I'm not sure that I've plugged recently. Anyway, the story goes that STC was reading Marco Polo's book, specifically his account of Xanadu, the famous palace of Kublai Khan, and how awesome it was. And Coleridge was so inspired to describe it in verse, to write an epic poem about this epic kingdom, and it was going to be his magnum opus. This place sounds fucking awesome. I'm slamming Sam Coleridge. I'm going to lay down some fat beat. So he hit the opium pipe, as was the style at the time, and he went about describing Xanadu. And the poem does just that. It's all about how Coleridge was dreaming about this sick place in China called Xanadu and how fucking amazing it is, and he's dropping these sick verses, and then suddenly someone knocks on his door, wakes him up from his dragon chasing, and then he can feel the dream slipping away and knowing that he'll never again be able to walk the grounds of Xanadu. So he tries to jot the ideas down as fast as he can, but he just can't write quickly enough, and the dream fades, even as he chases it until the idea, the greatest poem of all time, is just lost to him. Look upon my work and despair, ye mortals. Oops, sorry, wrong classic poem. Anyway, the upshot is that Coleridge only got down half of what he was planning to write before this person interrupted his stupor and the idea was lost forever. This person who woke him up happened to be from the unfortunately named English village of Porlock. And forevermore, when an artist has a great idea and they're interrupted before they can get it down, it's known as a person from Porlock. And that's why I always carry a notebook with me. It's not just because I'm pretentious. And one day, that's going to come up in a trivia night, and you're going to win because of me. As ever, you're welcome. Thank you all so much for listening. I love it. I love you guys. I love it all so much. Your feedback is so very, very appreciated. And I truly hope that each and every one of you knows the joys of crushing your enemies, seeing them driven before you, and hearing the lamentations of their women. And once again, I thank all of you for your patience with these shows. I know I'm more prolific than some, (laughs) Carlin, but I appreciate that we live in a society of instant gratification, and I am always humbled that you're willing to wait and occasionally pester me to get cracking on these shows. So thank you very much for that. And please keep telling me when you've nailed a trivia question because you listened to the show. That is, without a doubt, the best feeling in the universe for me. Anyway, there is a way to get more HGT in your life, if that's a fancy that you need tickled. I do the Patreon thing. It's patreon.com slash historygotime, and you can get extra stuff there. I do extra shows, I post notes, and there's offcuts from these shows, I give out the secret to eternal life, that sort of thing. 
Now, bear in mind, this level of awesomeness is going to cost you not much. I do this because I love this show and I love you guys for listening to it, but your boy gotta eat. Blame capitalism, not me. So if you want extra stuff or you want to just, you know, throw a couple of bucks my way as a little thank you, that would be so appreciated. But remember, this main show will always be free. I don't want anyone's lunch money or anything. I do this because I love doing it. I love you guys for loving it. I'm rambling. I'm going to go now. Feel free to like, subscribe, review, recommend to a friend, recommend to an enemy. It all helps the show. Thank you. Adios.